is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mildred DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Libra Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 106. I am your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Debbie Downer. This is Joe. And this is Salacious Stella. And we are bringing you the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the past two weeks, including the weeks of December 2nd through December 15th. Uh, we have a total of five books that we'll be covering on this episode, including Suicide Squad, as it still falls in with Death of the Family. And we have some news to go over. Uh, some solicitations were released, as well as some big announcements of some uh, writers changing on some of the books. So with that, let's get right into comic news. The very uh, first comic news we have is on December 5th, it was announced that this March, Batman number 18 will have a guest artist. Andy Kubert will be filling in for Greg Capullo. Greg Capullo will be taking one issue off, presumably to get ready for the big Riddler story that is going to be coming out, as we believe, starting with issue number 19. So Andy Kubert will be taking over for the one issue, and the uh, issue will be featuring Harper Rose, so it seems as if... After Scott Snyder gets done writing his big story arcs, we're going to get single issues focusing on Harper Row. Yay! Hooray! Yeah, no, I think that'll be good to have that character back in there because we only really got a, a sneak peek at her, that one issue where she just pops up in the van and he says, never, never come near me again. And then when we had that spotlight on her, but it's sort of been forgotten. So I think it'll be a great character to explore. And unlike a lot of the supporting cast in Batgirl that appears, I'm actually interested in this character. I think she could be fun. <laughs> I, Go ahead. I was, I'm interested in the character, but I don't think I necessarily need a whole issue on her. I'd rather that she just sort of popped up every now and then in the, the main arcs that are going on than have a whole issue. But I guess it's a a good break for Greg Capullo and stuff so that it's, you know, the, the art of a single arc isn't interrupted. But I'm definitely more interested in the Riddler storyline that's coming up. I agree. I, I, I like the singular issue we had that focused on Harper Row. I don't think that to develop a character you need to take time out of the storyline to do that, though. So I'm looking forward to seeing her. I just, I just don't, I don't, I'd rather they would do it naturally and not kind of, you know, force feed us development. But I still have high hopes for the character. All right, so then the next bit of news comes on December 7th. It was announced from comic book resources that Dwayne Swarzynski is going to be leaving Birds of Prey. <gasps> and taking over for him will be Jim Zubkovic, who uh, has been writing the series Skull Kickers over at Image for a while now. So basically, we don't know how long he's going to be on the series, but we can assume based off of the interview that Comic Book Resources posted he's going to be on the series as a series regular and not just filling in. Um, Zubikovic did fill in for some other issues within the New 52, but he specifically was approached by Bobby Chase 
to talk about writing Birds of Prey. So I think it'll be interesting to see. Uh, so far, we know that the artist that he'll be teaming with will be the same artist that's going to be doing the book leading up to his debut. Romano Moliner will be uh, staying on the title with him. And in addition to that, we know that, well, we already knew this even though we don't review the book anymore, that the female talent that has popped up, she's going to be part of the Birds of Prey along with Batgirl and Black Canary. They're going to be taking on Mr. Freeze in their first issue. So, sounds interesting. Yeah, so, well, number one, so it's been revealed now that the talent is definitely going to be on the Birds of Prey. And I was wondering about Condor being a part of the team because he's been popping up in the past two issues when they've been in Yokohama, Japan. The fact that you only said... Talon was going to be joining Canary and Batgirl means that something's also going to have to happen to Ev. Perhaps she's kicked off the team if her secrets are revealed that she's actually sort of working with Waller. Who knows? But my main concern is the fact that there have been, and I guess if no one's still reading the book, it doesn't really matter, but it matters to me. The fact that there were all these storylines that had like loose ends that have yet to be wrapped up. Like we still have loose ends from the choke story arc. And then when that group of people came in, how that was all related. And now we went off on something else. And if the writer who started all of that left, and we're going to have to talk about this again when we talk about Gail Simone, but if the writer leaves and they have all those loose ends will they ever be tied up and so that's sort of my concern I don't know this new writer I can only hope that it'll still be a great book because it's still one of my favorites that I like to read month to month but it's sort of sad to see Swarzynski go from that title all right, so moving on to the next bit of news on December 9th, which was, in fact, a Sunday. Oh, yes. There was a series of tweets that Gail Simone herself tweeted saying, On Wednesday of last week, new Batgirl editor Brian Cunningham informed me by email that I was no longer the writer on Batgirl. It is baffling and sad. I will probably have a statement later today or maybe tomorrow. So Gail Simone is off of Batgirl. And uh, that is as of number 17, which comes as... A slight surprise because mm-hmm. even though we have looked at Batgirl and not given it very favorable reviews based off of Gail Simone's work, it is surprising because Gail Simone has been with DC for such a long period of time right. that they just basically sent her an email and said, you're off the book. It only took until the following day. On December 10th, it was announced that Ray Fox will be writing Batgirl for two issues. I assume that he's only filling in for two issues and the ongoing continuous writer has yet to be figured out okay <laughs> this was one of some of the biggest i think one of the biggest writer news in a long time because like dustin said you know, we've not been very nice to miss simone myself in particular since before the new 52 and yet she was always touted as you know dc's premier female writer so this, this is definitely a shock and a surprise first off i have no sympathies that she's off the book but I will say that, like, it was wrong of her that she she gets, you know, notified by email. She wasn't brought in in a meeting or she wasn't brought, said face to face by anybody. Mainly because of the name and the notoriety that she brought to DC Comics with her work. I mean, her work on Secret Six and Birds of Prey beforehand is still one of, you know, one of the most lauded modern day comics DC has. So to kind of, and she was most notably DC's only female talent going into the New 52. So, to kind of treat her like this, I think, does a, a serious disservice. It's, it's, it's out and out rude, and I'm not sure what DC is actually, exactly thinking 
handling this because if you look, there's, she has a lot of fan support and a lot of creator support. Everyone from Scott Snyder to gosh, other writers I don't remember right now have shown up their support for her just in the way she was sort of treated. Because I think that like her run on Batgirl is actually kind of more mixed than I realized. When I realized she was being fired, I looked up and see people are kind of mixed. Yeah, they really like it or really don't like it. But that being said, this has more to do with DC's diplomacy in terms of how they treat their writers. I mean, we've already had controversies with Grant Morrison, George Perez, Amy Reader, Rob Liefeld, and possibly others. And from what we were reporting, I remember specifically when Backer was not to be on the Birds of Prey, I think Gail Simone's always had a sort of, uh, it's fair to say, contemptuous relationship with DC in the past year. And even when we, we see her at cons, it, it, she was... But she always came off odd every now and then. So I think this is sort of like related to that in some way. We don't know the full details yet. And believe me, we will find out. But uh, as of now, not sad. In fact, I'm actually elated that she's off Batgirl. I'm thrilled. But in terms of the way she went out, she was done wrong. And I, and I feel bad for her. Yeah, I agree. Like, don't ecstatic that she's off the book. Because hopefully I'll actually start enjoying it now. But I, I agree. It was definitely not a tactful way to go about it and I don't think DC have done themselves any favours either because looking at the comments on her last solicited book there's definitely a lot of angry fans about this and I know that Gail Simone fans are very passionate about her work so I think that DC have you know, done a disservice themselves because now they're going to have this negative view on them by all of those fans and I know she's off to do an, I believe an independent book so I'm sure she'll get a lot of extra love on that so you know I mean I don't like her writing style, but I know a lot of people do, so good luck to her in the future. Yeah, and I keep referencing this, but I feel like the quote to really pull on this whole thing is taken from The Hangman and Dark Victory. (laughs) None of you are safe, (laughs) because just the fact that Gail Simone, of all people, is the one to be cut off of this book, and I feel like she was the hand-picked person, you know, for Batgirl, and if anyone were potentially to write Batgirl, I think everyone most likely would probably say, oh, Gail Simone. And so to see that she's gone, that's that's sort of a shock to the system. Now, yes, I am indeed happy that she is gone because obviously I wasn't enjoying it and I'm looking for a new and fresh take. I have two concerns. First concern is how are things going to be wrapped up with what has been going on? The fact that she has written several issues into the future, that she had things explained, how Barbara was able to walk again, sort of wrapping up all those past storylines and things about her history. That's gone down the tube. So are we ever going to learn those certain facets of Barbara's life? And the second concern, which is perhaps the greater concern, is who is going to be taking over this book? Because we could be going from one like person that we don't like to somebody even worse. Could it be a no-name, which could be good in, in the face that, I mean, we didn't really know who Brian Q. Miller was at that time, though he had written some Teen Titans. But relatively, he was new, I would say. And he came on, it was great. Or could we have someone that we don't really know who it is? He's been handpicked and he doesn't do the character justice. So I'm, I'm just afraid we're going to be leaping into some fire. Now, some people have speculated, could it be Scott Snyder taking over the book? And I, I really respect Scott Snyder. I think he's a great writer, but I also think that Batgirl is the one book out of all the Bat books potentially that needs to be fun and uplifting and a lighter tone. And I think that putting Snyder on the book would 
continue the dark tone that we sort of have already been dealing with, starting with Simone, or even bring it even darker. And I just feel like Barbara is not that sort of character because even, you know, in the Silver Age and everything, there may have been some dark storylines, but in the end, it was like very uplifting and she was still able to crack a smile and enjoy what she was doing while she was fighting. And I feel like we haven't had that sort of fresh air Barbara in a while. So I'm hoping it's not Snyder, not because I don't like him, but just because I don't think it would be the right fit. But I'm, yeah, that's all I have to say. I'm going to say flat out, it's not going to be Snyder. Okay. Yeah, he's doing Superman. Um, yeah, he's, got, he, he's got the Superman book, but also his final issue of Swamp Thing is coming out. I think he said it was Swamp Thing 18 or 19 is his final issue of Swamp Thing. And the reason why is because he has a couple of different projects, and he has stated numerous times in multiple interviews that he doesn't want to be doing more than three books at a time. And Swamp Thing is ending. American Vampire is on hiatus right now because he has so many other things going on. And he has stated that he has a creator-owned series that he's doing for Vertigo that he's wanted to do for quite some time. And he kept putting it off and putting it off, and now he wants to start doing that. So my understanding is that Swamp Thing will be ending. American Vampire will be picking back up. He'll also be doing that Superman series. So that's the three books. And then he'll be working on his creator series for a while as well. I don't think it'll get released right away. It probably won't get released until however long he's going to be on the Superman book. But I, I don't see Snyder taking over for Batgirl. I honestly can't even imagine who it would be taking over. Ultimately, I think it's going to end up being somebody outside the box that we're not going to expect. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to get Tony Bedard to come back and do that. Not that I would want him to come back anyway. I mean, come back. Where's Where's he been? Well, he was doing Birds of Prey with you know Babs's Oracle before Gail Simone took over. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I see what you're saying. So he was doing that. So, I mean, he's written the character before, even though it wasn't Batgirl. He's done it. I'm just thinking of people who've done it in the last couple of years that have a possibility now. Bedard was writing some stuff with Blackest Night. He might actually be writing a series right now with the New 52. I'm not super familiar with outside, obviously, with that and stuff as far as what he's doing, but I'm pretty sure he's, he's, he's doing something. He might have been doing Blue Beetle for some reason that yeah, rings oh, a bell. Yeah. So, but Blue Beetle is coming to an end too. So, the reality of it is that he would be free to come on the book if they were to bring him in. But I really think they're going to try to go with New Blood. That seems to be the case with what they've been doing with a lot of the books. When the New Fifty Two started, a good chunk of the writers who came on to the Bat books when the New Fifty Two started were newer writers with Kyle Higgins and. Dwayne Zrazinski, and for the most part, even when you look at it from the perspective of even Tony Daniel and Scott Snyder were still newer to writing bad books, with Snyder writing for less than a year before the New 52, and then Gail Simone was really the veteran amongst them. Judd Winnick had obviously written numerous things in the past, but he hadn't been writing Batman books except for that Red Hood miniseries before the New 52, and he wrote two of the series or when the New 52 started. So, I mean... If you look at even some of the writer changes since the New 52, Anno Senti coming on, she's never written any Batman stuff. She took over Catwoman. We have now Jim Zub writing Birds of Prey, and he's new to DC Comics. He hasn't written anything in DC Comics, much less the Bat Books. And 
I mean, they've changed up things. We had John Lehman coming in from doing stuff outside of DC to come in and do Detective Comics. I mean, they've they've done a pretty good job of bringing writers in. And for the most part, most of everybody they've brought in to write books after the original writers leave have done a better job. I can't honestly say that any of them have done a worse job than what was coming out prior to them Mm -hmm. coming in. Yeah. So, I mean, they've done a pretty decent job making changes when they need to and making changes in a positive way. So I'm hoping that that's what ultimately happens with Batgirl as well. I I hope... Oh. Ladies first. Oh, well, Gail Simone said that she's going to release sort of a press later. Why or whatever was going on. And I, I, I am interested to hear why she was let go or if she'll ever know or it's just like, hey, we're going to make some changes. I'm guessing she'd never release that statement. No. Well, there was this podcast called The Batman Universe, and every month they kept slating my books. So I just had enough. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, if we had something to do with it, I would I have no regrets. But I will say, one thing that I remember reading from her is that, like, she said that she had written up issues that would go into detail about Barbara walking again that are, they've already finished, and that she said that they won't be published now. And I'm, I find that very curious, because why would DC Comics pay for a written script and then not publish it and have somebody write it over? I mean, un- unless it's just so- totally sacrilege to what they would have in mind, which I don't, think, I don't think she would do. I'm not sure why that happens. Or maybe the reality was that the stuff that she wrote was just so outside the box that they just even get, they got more upset about what she was doing, and that's why they decided to change. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Do we want to speculate this? DC clearly has a number of issues when it comes to specific writers and and how they are let go and things like that. I'm not one to debate that. What I do have to say, though, is Brian Cunningham coming on to Batgirl, maybe he wanted something different because he wasn't happy with what was going on. And maybe... Who's Brian Cunningham? He's the new editor on Batgirl. Oh, okay. Thank you. So my, my understanding is this, okay? I ultimately think that maybe DC asked Gail Simone to change something and she chose not to change something, and she may have written multiple issues in into the future and explained why Babs can walk and all of this. But it either it comes down to one of two things. Either DC didn't like the timing of what she was trying to do as far as she wanted to reveal things they didn't want to reveal, which we as fans want to know, but maybe DC doesn't want us to know yet, or... It's that they were telling her that they needed, she needed to move up the timeline for the stuff that she was trying to do instead of playing this extremely long game. And one way or the other, someone was in the wrong, and that's why something happened. So, I mean, either DC said they wanted changes or Gail Simone wanted changes from what was happening, and ultimately Gail Simone's not doing the book anymore. I mean, the reality is we didn't like what she was doing, so... To sit here and debate whether or not her writing a story about how Babs can walk again would have been good, I honestly can't say that I would be looking forward to it because it would probably just piss me off even more. Well, I mean, let's try to kind of think. Sometimes. I'm not sure if, like, I, I don't know if Gail Simone wrote anything that DC didn't like. I mean, we didn't hear anything about that. Conversely, and I, and I said this at the start, she seemed really unhappy with a lot of things that were going on, or at least, at the very least, unenthusiastic during the 52. I mean, she made that interview with Henry Burr, which basically defended the idea. But uh, it's, it's, it goes back to like the last Comic-Con. Josh and I were at the Batman panel. The moderator asked her, what's up for Batgirl? She says, well, Batgirl's going to be experiencing new things. And she didn't go into very detail. She didn't seem very uh, very excited about it. And it, 
to me, kind of, it kind of, it kind of speaks to like that Batgirl, at least behind the scenes, was a very labored and troubling process. Of course, we, I mean, and I'm not trying to say it's because we didn't like the book. It just, that just seemed to me, judging from her responses to certain things and also Josh's interview with her last year. So I'm wondering, I don't, I don't know so much if DC didn't like her, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to like whether she proposed something and they didn't want to go with it or it's, it's pure speculation at this point, but it doesn't, I don't know. There's definitely a story to be found out here. All right. So then the only other news we have is the solicitations for March were released. And now there isn't a whole lot of surprises. Most of them we, we've already referenced as far as the uh, guest artist on Batman number 18, Gail Simone off of Batgirl and Ray Fox taking over on Batgirl and over on Birds of Prey, Jim Zub taking over from Dwayne Zbrzezinski. Those were the big changes, and they were obviously announced before the actual solicitations were released. Now, as far as the actual solicitations, there's nothing really worth talking and discussing about for a long, long extended amount of time, but I do want to bring up one interesting thought. Now, back in November when the solicitations released, I wrote up an article on the website talking about the uh, chances of a Red Robin title coming out in the near future. Basically, I dissected the solicitations for February and talked about how it was very possible and also gave the extended back history of as to how the Red Robin series could be coming about. So with these solicitations, I'm going to give a short update on this. And my update is we obviously don't have a Red Robin title yet. And (laughs) even even though we don't, I think it is only a matter of months away. If DC plays the same game that they did last year, we could be seeing the Red Robin title as early as May, possibly April, depending on if they decide to release the new titles in May like they did last year or if they move them up a month. Now, there are series that have ended, and they've already got a new set of, I guess, new wave of comics coming in February with all of the uh, Justice League of America-related series that are coming out. And there's nothing Red Robin there, so I don't think it'll be April. I'm thinking more on the lines of it's probably going to be May or June that we'll see something. And based off of some detective work that I did over the weekend, I'm thinking it could be as early as May. Now, in that article that I wrote, I talked about how Brett Booth would probably be a very good candidate for the artist for that series based off the fact that he was doing pretty much a lot of the art for Teen Titans, where Tim Drake is, in fact, pretty much the main character of that series. And I also stated that Fabian Nassiza would be a perfect candidate for the writer. And we know Fabian Nassiza is currently writing Batwing, and we all can expect or as we are expecting, Batwing will come to an end in the near future as well. That being said, there was some interesting developments that I came across over the weekend. And I say this as lightly as possible because it's, it's, it's a very small thing, but when you have nothing to go on, you got to go on the smallest things possible. And there were recently Fabian the Size started up a Twitter account and I started following him. And Stalker. he has been trading some conversations with Brett Booth about an upcoming project that they are both working on. So not only if this ends up being a Red Robin series, not only will I have called this back in November, but I'm telling you all so that everyone will know now in December that it's most likely going to be happening. It's just a matter of when right now. So maybe January will roll around and we'll get the solicitations for April 
and will be revealed there are more series that are being ended coming April, which will reveal that there will be a new wave in May. And if that's the case, then I'm sure it's only a matter of time. February will roll around and we'll get the announcement that the Red Robin series is in fact happening. Now, like I said, you have to take this lightly because obviously they could be working on something that has nothing to do with it. The likelihood of that I find very unlikely, so I'm sticking with they're working on the Red Robin series, and this is what is going to be happening. It's just a matter of when now. We'll see about that. All right. So with that, that is all of the comic news we have to report. I do want to apologize. The website still hasn't been updated. We're hoping to get that taken care of um, in the coming weeks, but most likely in the next couple weeks with the holidays rolling around, that is not likely. January will roll around, which will be our five-year anniversary of the Batman Universe. We do have a number of different things planned for 2013, but we'll talk more about that later. But uh, the biggest thing is that the uh, news will should start picking back up on the website, as well as more, I guess, punctual releases of some of the podcasts that we have not been doing recently. So I'll talk more about some of that stuff later. But with that, let's get into our comic book reviews, and the very first book we have is Suicide Squad, number 15. Yay. Suicide Squad, issue 15, Running with the Devil, part 2, writer Adam Glass, artist Fernando Dagnino. This issue continues with the last one left off. Harley is getting choked by the Joker with some sort of chain. I don't, I believe they're, they're in the, the bottom of Ace Chemical Plant because there's a pillar with the word ACE on the left side of the spot, double splash page. Harley passes out of Joker choking her and awakens on a stretcher tied up. The Joker's gloating over her, basically saying that he's going to turn her insane or even better than she was before. We cut to the Bell Rev prison where we see some guy called Yo-Yo and Skinny Amanda Waller observing everything. Amanda Waller says that she figured once the Joker initially escaped back in Detective Conference number one, he'd be back for Harley. So he implanted Harley with these two-way mirror contacts so she could see everything she was going because she knew that the Joker would return to Harley eventually. So Harley somehow, and it's really hard to tell because of the art, breaks her bonds and gets Joker in a bit of a chokehold over the cliff of chemicals and acid that's below them. The Joker six their hyenas, Bud and Lou, on her, injecting them with rabies so they're a lot more ferocious and attack Harley to seemingly not recognize her. Harley defends herself and ends up killing the two hyenas and says that she'll kill the Joker, and actually in action begins a fight with him. The Joker fights back and counteracts with a classic Mike Tyson ear chomp. Harley grabs a nearby door of an engine and slams across the face of the Joker, and slams his face to the wall. His face gets stuck, and he says that this is when I learned you know, to be more feral and more animalistic, to lose my human traits when I start to lose my skin, and once I break your you know, your skin, you'll be just like me. And by this point, Harley realizes that the bite she had on her ear injected with the type of Joker poison that we've been seeing since Batman and Robin. So Joker, st- uh, so Harley starts mewing and says that, you know, even though I know that we don't belong together, I still love you and starts to kiss him and then bites out his tongue. So by this point, Joker kicks her and knocks her out because this whole issue is just a fight issue. And she wakens up in some sort of dungeon lair next to a bunch of skeletons with the Harley costumes on them. Joker's like, oh, what? You thought you were the only Harley Quinn? Ha! You don't even be the last one. I've always had Harley Quinns and you'll die just like them. Ha ha ha. So that happens. Hours later, we see Waller and Captain Boomerang walk back to Barrel Web Prison. And then Harley shows up 
unconscious and her and her wrists are wounded, but she's still alive. She escaped the change from the Joker dungeon. After Batman 14, Joker shows back up and sees that Harley's gone, and we end the issue with a man waking up from his from his deathbed as people are saying over an intercom, Contact War, ASAP! Tell her Deadshot's alive! Next issue, Deadshot Rising. So this issue sucked. I well, let, me, let me try that again. I didn't like this issue very much. Basically, the impetus of this issue is that Harley and the Joker have this very tumultuous relationship, which we all knew about beforehand. But I feel in this issue that it was kind of taken to the nth degree. I think this issue tried to prove that that there is some sort of care the Joker has onto Harley, but it's very twisted because all of his feelings are supposed to be twisted. And Harley's, who's been a lot more independent in this title, I, I figure, is basically trying to save her life and fight for herself. So I have a very just general question, I, but I think this general question can lead to interesting discussions. It kind of involves both the Joker's characterization and the, again, the ongoing plot of death of the family. It's sort of a twofold question. What did you guys think about how the relationship between the Joker and Harley was portrayed in this issue? And bridging off of that, if you want to get before then or afterwards, how do you think the Joker was portrayed in this relationship? I think for the most part, the biggest thing with this issue is that Harley is definitely coming across as she's moved on from the Joker. And even though it's always been portrayed as it states in this actual, in the dialogue throughout this is that I think it was Amanda Waller who points out that it's believed that Harley exists because she needs the Joker. And in, in reality, it's actually the Joker who needs Harley. And basically, I think that's the basis of this entire issue is that that's what it's coming across as is that the Joker is being portrayed as a character who needs a Harley as pointed out by the very end of the issue where he locks her in the thing and says, you think you're the first Harley? You're definitely not. And there's all those bodies in there. I think that was taken a little bit over the top because quite honestly, this is a character who's been around forever and he's never really had a supporting character except Harley. And what, what was his name? G- Gaggleworth or whatever his name was. <laughs> he doesn't count. He's the only other person who's really been like a, supporting character who's lasted more than a few issues. So I don't believe that he's had all these other Harleys. So that's not very believable to me. As far as the, the Joker beating the crap out of Harley because, you know, he's upset. Yeah. I, that's believable to me because I think ultimately the Joker's upset, but ultimately he, he's the guy, he's the type of person who's going to, you know, be pretty pissed when something that's his is taken away. That's the whole basis of the death of the family. He feels as if all of these allies of of Batman are taking the attention away from himself. So I think it's believable. I don't think that the characterization is that off. The thing that bothered me the most was the fact that they made it seem as if he had all these other Harleys that have never, ever been referenced. I took it as pretty much face value in that. Amanda Waller basically said, you know, what they were saying, you know, saying Harley loves him. And then there's that whole point about her loving him so much that she's willing to do all these things, but never really being happy with it. And I, I think that sometimes we see that sort of aspect, but a lot of the time from what we know, you know, the animated series and stuff, and I guess this is all before the 52, but, you know, she really does take pleasure in it. So that's a bit different, but I'm not sure I mind it. And it kind of, goes along with her not, you know, being so madly in love with the Joker now and being repulsed by him and his face and stuff. I took the 
the room full of Harley Quinns as Joker messing with her because I think the whole point of this is he's trying to get her to be his Harley Quinn again rather than, you know that's why he keeps calling her Harleen he's trying to turn her back into the you know the psycho who's madly in love with him and does anything for him I don't think this really falls into a death in the family book I think it's mostly kind of convenient that the then why are we reading away it? and then huh then why are we reading it no I mean I I don't I don't mind the book it's just it's, it's not to do with the time because the whole point is you know he's taking away the people that are distracting Batman and Harley Quinn's not really got anything to do with Batman especially in the new 52 where she's in Suicide Squad so I don't think it should fall under that tagline but I think that the timing is still kind of right that he's come back and now he's you know he's going after her after this year of being away I agree with Joe that I felt, even though I was really shocked to see all those dead bodies in there, and I thought to myself, oh no, are those really all Harleys? I feel like, just as Joe said, that they're probably just <laughs> decoy dead bodies. I mean, I'm sure he had them, and he was the one to put them there, but I, I think that was just some sort of way to really break her and make her not break out because he said, you know, you don't have what it takes to break out of this. And so he gives her all these, look, they never had what it took either. And, but she's able to get over that and actually get out. And I also agree with Dustin that I think him beating Harley up, though it was hard to, to read. I could see that happening. And mainly I think of the Batman, the animated, the animated series episode where he gets really upset. Wait, isn't that mad love? <laughs> He gets really upset at her and like hits her and pushes her out of the fish factory building. So, I I mean, it's happened before. I like this particular issue because even though it was really weird to have her like French kiss him and then bite his tongue out and, and him bite her ear off. I liked that Harley wasn't weak and she wasn't the Harley that we're used to fawning over Mr. J all the time and doing whatever he wants. She was actually sort of fighting against it. She wasn't sure of the things that he was asking her to do and whether she should do it. And I I thought it was like a stronger characterization and a different one that we've seen of Harley rather than just this sort of the sad puppy dog that was following him around all the time. Let me tell you why you're all wrong. Wow. <laughs> because I, I, I don't have a problem with how Harley's done this issue. The point of the, the story, at least from what we have to go on, is that the Joker, very much how he's sort of jealous that the, that the Batman's sort of been ignoring him because he's preoccupied with all of his sidekicks and partners, is that like he needs to bring Batman to a purer state where he's only concerned with his mission and i.e. only concerned with, you know, with people like the Joker. And Harley relates to this because Harley should only be with the Joker and he's mad that she's with the Suicide Squad now. So in that he's sort of attacking Batman and he's sort of, you know, attacking all Batman's allies. And I still argue he should just kill them. He, he's going after the Har- Harley and continuously tries to kill her until the very end where he says, you know, well, I'm trying to make a point and you'll, you'll be like me. The issue in this issue loses focus by the end in that Joker goes from Joker tries to kill her like, in every scene. It's a gigantic fight issue. So that's one thing. But near the end, he he starts talking about how he, once he lost his face, he started to, you know, really gain his animalistic side. And he wants to kind of do that for Harley. That's why he won't kill her. And he traps her inside until she sort of withers away, which is contradictory to the beginning of that very sentence. If you could, first of all, the Joker had his own face cut off. It wasn't like that happened to him. He, he, 
agreed to let Doll Man or the Doll, doll Maker, doll doll maker. maker one of those guys, to cut his face. It was an arrangement. So it wasn't like we saw the Joker have some sort of epiphany. But he's telling to Harley, once I lost my skin, this happened, and then this happened, and it will happen to you. While he's trying to kill her, while he's trying to end her existence. So, on the face of this issue, he's trying to, I think, going along the lines of how he feels about Batman, it makes sense. But this issue is trying to have it several different ways. And it ends up being very confusing and ultimately taking the readers and the characters sort of for granted. If Joker wants to attack Carly because she's part of the Suicide Squad, that makes sense. If Joker wants to sort of change Harley the way he's been changed, that makes sense. You can't try to do two things at the same time, essentially. I think Harley's really good in this issue. I like the idea that she's, she realizes that the Joker's ultimately a, a horrible thing for her to be involved with. And I think that like whatever character development she's received in this past title is, is good for her. I think that the Joker, and this is sort of a problem with I have with the entire death of the family storyline, is that like it's essentially the Joker attacks people. And while there, while Scott Snyder puts forth this idea that the Joker has a deeper intention going along and he's different and he's darker, it essentially dilutes down to in these other offshoot titles. They're trying to have it to where why is he attacking them? Well, he's attacking them for this reason. And the reasons aren't consistent in this, at least in this issue specifically. So while I understand from a certain point where the Joker would attack Harley, I think they need to stick stick to a certain point and not just jump around two or three times. Do you understand what I said or or do you disagree? I, I get your point. It seems like he is trying to do sort of two things at once. But uh, I think I read it as the overriding fact was he was trying to turn her into Harley Quinn again and have someone loyal to him, but there were a lot of conflicting themes within it. I think we see your same issue come up in Batgirl, which we can't really talk about yet. But I do understand that the writers are coming at it, I think, from like two different angles. I think they have like Scott Snyder's angle, and then they add another one. So it it, it makes Joker seem (laughs) like he doesn't know what he's doing either. Because he comes at you very directly in what he wants, and then he does something else that makes you confused. So I, I do understand where you're coming from. Okay, that was, that was my main talking point, because I, I think everything else is sort of superfluous. All right, so Suicide Squad number 15, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batarangs. <laughs> For me, Debbie Downer, I'm giving this one out of five batarangs. I agree with... Dustin, I'll give this 3 out of 5 batterings. And I'll give it 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Alright, so that is going to give Suicide Squad number 15 a total of 3 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book. Batgirl number 15, Collision Part 2, Engagement. Writer Gail Simone, Pencils Daniel Sampiere, Inks Vicente Cefuentes, and Colorist Ulysses Areola. Some time ago in Arkham Asylum, Joker asks a doctor whether she read his journal, and she explains that it was difficult to make out, which he understands since his enthusiasm and choice of ink made it illegible. Who knows if the ink was blood? I don't know. Now, Joker happily skates around Batgirl, saying that he feels they make a cute couple, and he expects a dowry. If she marries him, she'll be able to save Bab Sr., but he needs to know the answer to the question. Then, Joker explains that he has all the answers about the bat. He knows everything about him, though it may be jumbled, since he wrote some of it after being beaten senseless. He continues to narrate as the doctor flips through pages of the diary, until she comes to a page which describes what he would do if he ever met a nine-year-old named Sasha. Hey, that happens to be the daughter's name of the doctor. Now, 
Joker puts a gun to Barbara Sr.'s head and demands to know the answer, and Batgirl relents, though it's not really that easy. Outside of Cherry Hill skating, James watches and receives an emotional phone call from Alicia, or Alicia, who frantically explains that Baz was attacked and left, and oh, baby, oh, baby, she wants James to comfort her, of course. (laughs) Then, the doctor wants to go, but Joker explains that therapy time is not over, and he continues to prattle on about the journal as the doctor breaks down crying. The journal has everything, his side of the story, even the exact qualifications for his life partner and the wedding that would follow. Now, Batgirl shouts to the henchman that Joker is less than three meters from the bomb, then goes after Joker, hitting key points until he falls and drops the gun. She picks up the gun and points it to a crucial point in his spine. A sniper shoots near her and she gets off of him. Joker then hands Batgirl some instructions and tells her if she falls, then Bab Senior will be safe. Batgirl doesn't want to leave the people in the rink, but Joker asks what people, as they have all died of laughter. Before leaving, Batgirl puts her mother's finger in a bag within a bag of ice. Don't really know where she got the Ziplocs from, but okay. She then tells Joker the rules no longer apply here, perhaps insinuating that she may kill him. After she leaves, Joker receives a phone call from James Jr., who tells him he knows what Joker is planning and that he will not allow it. Alicia is clearly confused and asks what he is doing, to which she responds that they are going to help his sister, apparently. Then... The doctor asks why Joker is telling her this, and he explains that she's a female, and that females are tricky and prone to infidelity. Why marry someone if she's only going to cheat? Why not? Right after the wedding, during the honeymoon, he took her arms and legs and kept her alive forever in the basement. Isn't that romantic? Now, Batgirl arrives at a condemned church, looks at the directions, get flowers, get veil, get hitched, and goes inside. She sees the creepy veil and flowers on an altar, and then a clown appears with a gun pointed to a priest's head. The priest explains that a whole gang of clowns is holding his congregation hostage. No idea why there are churchgoers in a condemned church, but okay, Gilsimo. Looks like Batgirl walked into her doom. Next, till death do us part? Question mark? Yeah. <laughs> this is one of those issues where it really nothing happened. I think the majority of stuff happened in the last two pages and everything else was filler. So I guess we can understand why we will no longer be having Simone on this book. My first question, what is the point of the intermittent backflashes with the doctor? Does it serve to further the story or the crossover? In my opinion, it was just annoying to me because it kept popping in during what should have been the main part of the story. But what are your thoughts on this? What's the point of the doctor flashback? Mm-hmm. To show that the Joker's a sick and crazy guy who knows everything. Of course. I mean, essentially, that's, that's nakedly what it was about. You know, it's supposed to really show the Joker's creepy. And I guess, I guess ideally it is a way to illustrate him for anybody who, anybody on the planet who doesn't know what the Joker's like who's reading this comic. I think the thing is that, like, one, everybody who reads this comic already knows what the Joker's like. And two, like you said, it's sort of, it doesn't have a place in the story. It doesn't have anything to do with Batgirl. And it's before he got his face cut. So it's like, unless I miss something, and I probably, it's possible, I don't think that, that it has anything to do with the overarching theme of Death of the Family, just beside the fact that the Joker's a sick guy who makes people cry and is scary. And again, that's not that we've not read before. Yeah, I, I think it started getting more into the story 
towards the end where it, you know, it was saying about the wedding and stuff, but that was the only thing. I was wondering more if it was the origin of his, you know, the little black book he has, which keeps referencing in Batman, which, I mean, it looked vaguely similar where he says he's got all of his information in it, but we didn't learn anything about it, if that's what it was. My thing was, I thought that it was kind of odd that it was happening, mm-hmm. but the thing is, if you think about how Gail Simone's been setting up a lot of her previous issues, this seems as if it would be something that she's been doing in the past and she's going to continue to do. The fact that she puts in these little pieces to only come back to them later. I mean, she did it with James Jr., she did it with Alicia... She's done these things in the past where, like, you get these little bits in one issue. It doesn't make any sense of why it's there Mm -hmm. other than it's just there. And then all of a sudden, in a future issue, they address something that has happened. But to me, that just comes across as filler. That's what the definition of filler is. The definition of filler is by putting something into the story that does not relate to the story, but will relate to a different story. That's what happens when you don't have enough material to write your full story and you're trying to hint at other things to come. Okay. My next point, do-do-do-do-do. What do you think? Joker ultimately has planned for Batgirl. Why would he declare that she and the other members of the Bat family are all weighing Batman down, propose to her, and then send her potentially to her death? I can see why he thinks that Batgirl is weighing Batman down. Because, I mean, just like their sidekicks, they're kind of sort of a novelty. Mentally, speaking, I don't know why. The marriage thing, just to me, just kind of, again, and I mentioned this in the last part, it really does kind of smack of sort of this cynical take on, you know, the old Batgirl comics. I mean, initially, at least from what I remember, Batgirl, you know, being the female version of Batman, at least Barbara Gordon's version of Batman, you know, you had the whole, you know, what a pair of gams thing and the whole, the fact mm-hmm. that she was running around in heels and the, and the power bag and stuff. It's just sort of like this, this whole take on a female Batman, which you already had, Kathy King. But anyway, I think that, that this is sort of like a dark parody of it. My thing is that, like, I think that this has been a re- sort of recurring theme in, in Gail Simone's run. Not an overarching theme, but I feel that there's been a lot of, like, for lack of a better phrase, and I do mean better phrase, girly kind of stuff in it. And that's just because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guy reading a, a book about a female character written by a female writer. But the fact that, like, there's a character called the Mirror and Gretel and Grotesque, which are all, I mean, I don't know. I, I I get a very feminine vibe from it. I think that this sort of kind of plays into Simone's writing, and I feel that, that I feel that's coming off as very prejudiced of me to say, but it's like the Joker is like you know he couldn't think of anything else to mess with that girl. Like, let's let's get married because I male, you female. So I think that's sort of like where the writing is coming from. I don't know why the Joker wants to do what he does because I think this is sort of like you know the Joker's wacky schemes, but I think that's what it's coming from in a writing perspective. Says I. Okay. And if no one else has to weigh on in on that one, I just don't understand the marriage thing. I, I can definitely see her trying to kill her off, but what is this weird, let's get hitched sort of thing? And we talked about this, I think, you know, during the, the Batgirl discussion on my own podcast, but I, I think that it may be clear that he may know her identity. And that may also be the point of having these intermittent backflashes. The fact that he says he knows everything there is to know about the bat so he may be giving some clues that he knows people's identities but to symbolically cut off a woman's finger and that woman happens to be barbara senior i think is pretty interesting however since they're 
wedding was, or their marriage was doomed, I guess that was sort of foreshadowing that Joker and Batgirl's wedding is also doomed if they're even going to get hitched. My final question was about James Jr. And what are his motives in aiding Barbara? I think he sees her as his thing to mess with, which is why he said to Joker, you know, stop it. She's not yours. And the only reason he's got to go and save her is because he doesn't want anyone else messing with her. And it's similar to what Joker is doing to Batman right now. You know, he sees her as his plaything almost Mm -hmm. is how I was reading it. The way I read this in this issue, apparently he wants to like, (laughs) let me rephrase that. Apparently he really likes Alicia. Because judging from like the fact that he's alone answering the phone and his facial expressions and the way the art depicts it, it looks like he actually kind of cares for Alicia and he knows what's going on, which is why – because he, he sent Barbara there. And he knew – in the last issue, he knew that his mom was kidnapped by Joker. So from the last issue, he didn't care at all. And this issue, he does because Alicia is upset by the circumstances, which actually I find really interesting. I I don't know why because it seemed like when he was – we went on that date with Alicia before – he was kind of messing with her, and we all kind of assumed it was a way to get to Barbara. And now it's like, well, he kind of likes Alicia, so only now will he intercept this plot that he willingly sent Batgirl into. So I think it's a very fair question. I don't know, because it's sort of, he's almost sacrificing his own plans just to make Alicia smile. And I find it really funny that he's, he's decked out in this black stuff and a turtleneck. But he still has this, like, you know, this cartoonish looking red hair and glasses, but. Apparently, it's all for the love of this this crazy cook woman. <laughs> the thing in my mind is, I thought the whole point of him dealing with Alicia was to screw with Barbara behind the scenes, like indirectly. I thought that was the whole point of what he was doing, not I'm going to, you know, get a girlfriend because I want a girlfriend. I thought the whole point was he was, you know, befriending her and, you know, spending time with her so that he could mess with Barbara without Barbara knowing that it was him messing with her. That's why he got Alicia the cat, which was the same cat that Barbara and James had when they were a kid. Right. I thought that was the whole point. It wasn't It wasn't supposed to be, I'm going to be there for this girl that I really want to be with. Like That just seems completely off of what the whole point of the character I thought was being accomplished. Mm-hmm. All right, so Batgirl number 15, I'm going to give a total of two and a half out of five batarangs. Yeah, Batgirl number 15. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give this I'll give it two out of five batarangs. I think I'll agree with Dustin and give it 2.5 out of five. And after being so rudely interrupted, I'll give it two and a half out of five batarangs as well. Thank you, Stella. Who interrupted? <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> you, you cut him off. Or not cut him off, but you like said your rating before him. <laughs> not that it- As if Joe wasn't here. So that's fine. Sorry. (laughs) Awesome. All right. So Batgirl number 15 gets a total of two and a half out of five bed ranks. Let's move into our next book, Batman and Robin number 15. Okay. Batman and Robin number 15, which happens after Batman number 15, but all right. Written by Peter Tomasi with art by Patrick Gleason. The issue opens with Robin on monitor duty as Batman has once again told him to sit this mission out. But also, once again, Robin disobeys him and begins investigating Alfred's disappearance. During his hunt for clues, he discovers a trace of hyena urine, and off to the zoo he goes. At the hyena enclosure, Robin believes they are eating Alfred, but as he enters the cage, he realizes that they are just eating the guard. However, as he has to fight off the hyenas, and whilst he succeeds, he also gets bitten by 
a joker toxin-laced hyena and faints, falling into a giant egg in a bird enclosure. Waking up, the joker is standing over him and his face upside down, but weakened by the toxin, Robin can hardly fight and is strung up by his ankles. Joker keeps trying to get into Robin's head, but Damien is just too cocky for that. The Joker drops Damien into another cage filled with insects, but before he leaves, he says he knows Robin's greatest fear, being the cause of Batman's death. And from behind Damien, a Joker toxined Batman rises out of the insects, ready to fight Damien. To be continued. So, I wanted to talk about Tomasi's writing style and wondered how you all felt about the constant storylines and references that he he puts in for instance uh, the killing joke or morrison's batman and robin run i was wondering if you thought it worked and uh, you know tied it into continuity or if it confused the story linking it to continuity that we don't 100 percent know still happened i'm sorry could you point out where these references were i don't remember offhand there's a bit where he's talking about i could never make you laugh without Oh, right. Gas induced, but I could make him laugh. We shared a good laugh before in the rain. And there was. And they referenced Damien with the crowbar yeah. and GCP, yeah. Chapman and Batman and Robin. There was a couple of them. I thought they were pretty good. I'll, I'll go first. I thought they, they worked well. The thing is, you're right. We don't know exactly what the continuity, how it stands based off of everything that's happened with the New 52. But, you know, even though Scott Snyder has said numerous times, everything that's happened has still happened and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, you know, that may be true and everything might have happened, but that doesn't mean they always address it. So in this case, Tomasi is addressing everything in a way where he's tying back specific major events that have happened. And it's nice to see another writer do this outside of Scott Snyder, who has referenced, like, different meetings between... Batman and Joker and things like that in, in past issues. But this, you know, Joker is basically throwing out there all these different times that he has encountered these characters, which is nice to see because, you know, it would be one thing to have Joker say, oh, I've never seen you before. Who are you? And that would be kind of dumb because that would negate the entire Grant Morrison, Batman, Robin run. That situation happening between Damien and Joker, that would negate R.I.P., I mean, there'd be a lot of different things that would just be completely pointless and say, well, what happened to those? But Tomasi's doing a nice job of making these other events that, that, you know, have happened between these characters. He's bringing them in to, you know, build, I guess, give more of a backstory between the characters and give it more meaning instead of just, hi, I'm Joker. I'm the bad guy. You're the good guy. You're Robin. And now you have to capture me or you have to fight me because that's what happens. I like that. I like that they're giving more, uh, I can't even think of the word that I'm looking for, but like more fluff keeps coming to mind, but fluff is not the word I'm looking for. Basically more concrete evidence that these characters have had interactions in the past and he's using specific instances so that we know what they are. Now, what would have been nice is if editorial would have put in their little stars that they seem to do in so many of the other books, if they would have put in the stars and said, see, Batman and Robin, blah, 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 or see, Batman the Killing Joke. You know, it would have been nice for them to do that, but I think the reason they didn't was because those reference books that aren't in 52, and for the most part, I feel as if DC wants to just pretend that these books that happened before the New 52 didn't happen. And that's just what it seems like, because they have no problem putting their little stars everywhere else when it references other New 52 titles and issues. Well, 
my thing is that I think Grant Morrison, Peter Tomasi has been very free with the uh, pre-Flashpoint references. Just in Batman and Robin number one, he referenced Damien working with Dick. And well, that's not, you know, I think that was sort of assumed to be, that was the story right before this. I think that was sort of assumed to be still in continuity, and it is. I think Tomasi, more than anyone else, is under the assumption that nothing's really changed. And he's sort of moving along from Damien's integration in the DC universe. I think that, like, I have a, I have a real hard time with it because I like the continuity references because it, I like reading comics because it feels like an ongoing narrative. It feels like an ongoing story with these characters and their lives. And I feel that like everything is connected, which is why the new 52 stings so much. But I think to be completely honest and objective about it, that kind of stuff really does hamper the reading of a new reader, you know? And I mean, I don't know if I told the story before. I'm pretty sure I did, but I remember when the new 52 started, I had a friend who was getting, I was getting into comics and he read Batman and Robin number one. And he had no idea who Damien was. He didn't care that like Damien had referenced all these other Robins who he didn't know who they were Robin in the first place. He was completely lost. And that's just, and that was a one and done issue. I think that like these sort of references are good for the people who read these comics. But the problem is that like these comics are sort of marketed towards people who don't read comics. I, people who can kind of get in them on a fresh start. That sort of leads into a, a larger problem with the new 52 itself. I'm not going to get into that because I'm going to spare you my whining. You know, but the one thing that I, w- I do want to comment on that, though, I think the big thing is that this is probably the one title that that does so many references to things that are pre-New 52. Yeah. And I think the reason that he gets away with it is because Damien? it's Peter Tomasi. No, I just think it's Peter Tomasi. I disagree with that. I don't really... S- I don't, I don't think an editor is going to say, no, you're doing something wrong, because I think ultimately what's going to happen is he is writing a story that he believes is a good story. And yes, they are marketed towards newer readers, and they're meant for newer readers, but really it comes down to the only reason they would ever actually have a problem with what he's doing is if they were going to sit there and say, these things didn't happen, don't reference them. Otherwise, it's completely fine. And I think the biggest thing is that DC's having a missed opportunity because if these books, as you said, and as it's true that these books are being marketed towards new readers, it would be smart of them to be putting in these editorial notes and they're saying, reference this book, check out this book for this story. That's a stupid decision on their part by not putting those things in because he is one of the few people who's referencing things pre-New 52. I disagree with that respectfully, of course, because I don't think Peter Tomasi's I don't think it's that big of a name to really carry sway. I agree with him that, like, if he were going to say, like, you know, if Damien just walked in, oh, I just got off the phone with Cassandra Kane. She said she misses being in these comics. Then DC would fire him. But I think as though, I mean, Tomasi used to be an editor at DC. And honestly, I don't think there's an editor at DC, especially on Batman. I'm not talking like Mike Martz. Mike Martz obviously is going to have more pull, but Peter Tomasi used to be an editor on some of these books. I have a hard time believing that some of these newer editors who have come on to DC are going to sit there and tell Peter Tomasi what he can and can't well, do. Well, they do it to, to Scott Snyder and Grant Morrison, though. Like what? Give me an example of what they, somebody has said that they can and can't do. Mention Stephanie Brown? Nobody has actually... They've never said that they've actually wanted to do Yeah, that. they did. Yeah, they, 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 they did. Scott Snyder... No, Grant Morrison's... But I know Scott Snyder and Grant Morrison's both said that they, they were going to mention, mention Stephanie Brown, and they said they couldn't do it. They flat out they're told that. You can you can go out and find this, and uh, I'm not I'm not trying to get into the whole Batgirl thing again. But that's fine. You will need to find this because I don't I don't remember this. It, right it definitely sounds familiar to me. I know there was one thing that Scott Snyder did related to Stephanie Brown, 
and it was in Batman number one where there was a blonde girl who looked just like Stephanie in the art who was supposed to be referenced as Stephanie, and that didn't happen. He's also going to mention Cassandra. That was the too. only thing that I remember anybody ever saying. Either. Well, I mean, just kind of, you know, I want to, I really do want to bring it back to the point. All right. That's but fine. like for da- Damien, Damien in and of himself is a very, very like particular case with this because he is a, I mean, he's not even 10 years old of a character, you know, in terms of creation. He, he is the Robin now because, because DC wanted a kid Robin. That's why Tim's not Robin, but his, his timeline is so brief and so relatively fresh that they really can't fudge with his continuity so much. This is why we got references to Batman and Son, which is why his story's really not changed because that's what they want. They can't really like, you know, rewrite it. And it's, especially since he's just reappeared. Conversely, though, references to the killing joke, references to death in the family, which are sort of, you know, ingrained in the other characters' histories like Barbara Gordon and Jason Todd. I think as, as long as they get those, are, the references in here were interesting and that like they were vague enough that they could be unchanged from the actual story but if you go back to like for instance i remember there was a red hood in the allies issue where jason had this flashback where he first saw or he, he first decided that he didn't like dick grayson he had batman at gunpoint as as the red hood saying oh i want to kill you now and nightwing shows up that never happened in the original storyline so i think that like I, i'm not sure peter Tomas. i don't think peter tomasi necessarily himself carries a certain weight with his writing or with his presence i think it's determined by the characters in this instance at least and i, and I, and I wish it were the same way because otherwise you could probably make it a, a cohesive story if you were actually a group editor of, of, the, of the bat books but the way i'm reading this comic i just feel like it's because damien is who he is you really can't change much aside from the fact that you know how old is he or how long did it take for him to, to age but that's you know kind of gets himself into a different point and i, and I hope i've not derailed this because it's kind of a multi-layered talking point I think, uh, I mean, I like the references because it makes it feel like Dom was saying it's part of a larger storyline, but I think it's risky because so many things seem to contradict each other. But I think it's loose enough, as Dustin was saying, it's vague enough for it to, for it to work. I mean, you know, I've said before how I, I feel that his writing style has started to become, you know, I'm seeing a lot of Grant Morrison in there and there's definitely references in there. To a lot of the stuff that's going on in Batman Inc. Not so much in this issue, but in other issues. So I, I also like the references. I just think that it's it can be dangerous because, you know, something that's said in this book would flat out, you know, contradict something that is done in another book. I, I think that they're they're small enough and subtle enough that they work. And I think it's 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 also great because it shows that the Joker has been somehow involved in the Bat family in like really pivotal moments of history. And I think this is his whole point that he should not be forgotten because look at all the times that he's been involved. Of course, all of them are like tragedies and, and terrible points, but I think in very simple dialogue and just one liners, uh, Tamazi is able to bring across how important Joker has been to the Batman universe. Yeah. <laughs> I guess my second point, I mean, I don't want to keep going on about this every single time you have a Death in the Family issue, but I was, I can't help but bring up how Joker's written in this. I, I want to know how you feel it was done. I thought it was yeah. extra creepy in this issue. And I, I think I liked it more than, definitely more than some of the other books we've seen him in. I thought it was really pretty cool in this. I like the look of him. He's got the same hairstyle as he had in Batman R.I.P. I noticed. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I was wondering how you felt about his writing in this. I gotta say, cause I was thinking about this in preparation for this episode. I'm not really feeling this story anymore. 
And I think that the main reason is that, like, while Scott Snyder, I think, I don't mind so much with, with Batman, and that's not because of a prejudice with Batman, but, like, I think that Scott Snyder is able to carry it to where it's mostly effective. The Joker is a character who can be extremely terrifying. Absolutely scary. I mean, Heath Ledger was so scary in The Dark Knight when I first saw it. And, you know, even in, like, stories like Return of the Joker, uh, when I saw Return of the Joker, he freaked me out because I was really young. So the Joker is absolutely a terrifying character and a threatening character. And when he's on the loose, especially in post-crisis, you really need to be on the, on the lookout. He's a character who a lot of people love. And he's a character who's, who's one of the best villains in comics. There is a certain tendency, though, to really make him over the top. To the, and writers have said this in the past. If you take the Joker and totally turn him and like, just put him on this, on this dime as this unrepentant homicidal maniac, he becomes unsavory. And I think that this issue puts it out there. I think that Patrick Gleason's art is fantastic in this issue. Joker really looks just, looks just messed up. And this looks like Silent Hill or something. But this is the Joker, you know? I'm not saying that, like, I believe that you can put anything in a comic book as long as it's a really good story, as long as it's done effectively. I think by this point, every writer who's not Scott Snyder just writes the Joker as often as, you know, okay, well, he's a, he's, he kills people. Okay, got it. And they write him to be the, the sickest, most disgusting thing ever. And I really think that loses the effectiveness because while the Joker, you know, he, he, he smiles, like says he's these really bad jokes and, you know, it just kills people left and right. Like in back, like Batgirl, this issue to a certain degree, Suicide Squad. I feel as though the Joker's like it's ironic almost because the sicker they make him, the more the more teeth they take out of him because it's not subtle. It's it's abrasively not subtle. It's just, I mean, he has all these you know all the bugs and he's just shoving them in Damien's mouth and he's screaming at him and he's talking nonsense. Like this really is this really gets into sort of like a stock horror character and it's not recognizably the character. Now I understand that Scott Snyder says that the Joker is darker or whatever. But I felt as though his methods were a lot more – I felt that there is a, a certain degree of nuance in Scott, the way Scott Snyder writes him because he's not in your face. He's not like all over the place. He's very you know, unpredictable. He's very sleek. He's silent. He moves fast. Uh, whereas, whereas here, you know, he just takes Robin and shows him into a, a zoo or whatever and throws a bunch of bugs at him. You know? Compare that to you know, the tape that he gave to Bruce Wayne. We didn't see Alfred getting Duncan ammonia. We saw Bruce's reaction to that. Part of that is also due to Snyder's writing. But part of it is just, I think that I really feel like, like the character is being misinterpreted for the worst. And again, this is, this is my interpretation, but I think that I, I don't think that I, this isn't the Joker to me. And I hate to say that because it makes me sound a lot older than I am, but this is just sort of like they're chasing an idea. They're chasing an idea of a scary, threatening Batman villain. And they're sort of like like overcompensating. And because of that, it doesn't come off being a very smartly written comic book. It doesn't come off being very thought out. It's just, you know, we gotta sell this threat, we gotta sell this this threat. And it just, you know, it is kind of disgusting and unsavory. So, I mean, that's really my take on this and the story as a whole. I personally thought the art was great. I thought some of I mean, yeah, it did borderline on like horror story, but I thought the art overall was pretty good. I thought that Patrick Gleason did a really good job. I thought it was those setups when uh, Damien first is in the birdhouse tied up and Joker's hanging upside down and he's wearing his face right side up. I thought that was really cool to see. But yeah, it definitely was bordering on horror story. It's something that I could see Joker doing, but like Don said, I have to wonder 
how eventually this is going to wrap up because I don't foresee for the rest of our lives the Joker having his face peeled off. I just don't. So something's going to happen where maybe at the end of the story, Joker is, you know, after he's caught and brought back to Arkham, someone decides they're going to reattach his face and then it goes back to being the way it was. But I just, I don't know. Like, that's the biggest thing that I keep thinking in my mind is about his face being peeled off and how this cannot be the ultimate new look for the Joker is that he's going to have his face tied onto his face with a belt. I just, that's the biggest thing that keeps rolling through my mind. Please don't even know why he had his face cut off. Has that ever been explained? Convenience. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, at the end of that story, it's just, you know, Dollmaker does that, so he does that. We don't know why. He comes back. And then in Suicide Squad, he's pretending as though, oh, when this happened to me, it was such a life-changing experience. And, like, it makes him look scarier, but ultimately, it's it's like, you know, why why not just, I don't know, why why, why does he just replace his teeth with his fingers? Is that kind of thing. We need him to be younger, hipper more relatable, and so he cut off his face, you know? I'm going to leave the call if you say that. <laughs> I keep going back to the thing that he's supposed to be different, so... and scarier. I mean, that definitely comes across in this issue. I thought the art was fantastic as well, mm-hmm. in a lot of instances. There was a lot of pages where I really liked it. But, I mean, yeah, I, like Dustin, I keep going back to the thing, like, he can't be like this forever. I mean, he's, they're going to have to turn his face back, and if they don't, I'll be really surprised. I mean, it's such a dramatic change, but I, I mean, I can't see like them selling T-shirts with the Joker's face like this. It, I mean, it's not; it doesn't look as I. He's not the iconic character anymore. But then, I mean, just because they reattach his face when he gets brought in, is that going to turn him back to normal, or is he going to have some like epiphany with Batman, and then that's going to change him back to the not so brutal Joker? Well, if you want to be real about it, like, I don't think that Scott Snyder envisioned this to be a massive crossover. He was just telling his own story. DC smelled money, so they had every other writer address this. And it makes sense because they're all bat books. But, I mean, what makes sense in Scott Snyder's book doesn't make, doesn't always make sense in Batgirl, Nightwing, or Batman and Robin. I think that, because I feel that the Joker really is different in there. Whereas here, it's like, I think that they would probably write him this way, even if he wasn't, had his, had his face cut off. I really do. I think that like every time that most time when the Joker appears in their books that typically don't focus the Joker, at least lately, it kind of feels that like, again, as I, as I'm repeating myself, they're kind of chasing this idea of the Joker, not really, not really understanding sort of like the concept of the Joker. Cause he's supposed to be like, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I really want to believe my point. It's not like, I don't even like what I'm saying, but it just, I feel as though. There's a, there's a reason why he's doing this, but I don't think that like the the writers have that reason reason in mind when they write him like this. You know, that makes any sense. I yeah, I'm pretty sure that from what I've heard in interviews and stuff, I mean, it might be untrue, but I'm pretty sure that Scott Snyder said that this was definitely planned out to be a crossover, opposed to Night of Owls, which is more of a late, like a last minute. Oh, hang on, this could cross over. Whereas I believe this one was set out almost from the beginning. Whether that was his decision or DC's, I don't know. But I think that from the beginning it was set out to be a crossover. I think the thing is, the biggest problem with these crossovers is that we have multiple people writing these stories based off of one writer's main story. And that's why there's these like small bits of confusion and there's these misinterpretations of the character and from one book to the next is because... Don't get me wrong. I like what Scott Snyder's idea is. The thing is, 
and all the interviews every single time this happened with Court of Owls 2, where Scott Snyder was saying, well, I just, I had the idea that these other, all the other books could tie in and, you know, we opened it up and said, if you want to do it, you can do it. If you don't want to do it, don't worry about it. And we let them do it if they wanted to. And, and I'm just thinking to myself, yeah, but the problem with something like that, where you give somebody an option of whether or not that you, you want them instead of saying, Hey, this book that you do would work perfectly for this. Because here's the thing, if you opened it up, and I'm, I'm just using this as an example, this has nothing to do with the actual writers who are doing some of these books. But like, if you walked up to J.H. Williams and said, listen, we were doing this Joker crossover, um, do you want to be in it? And he says, sure, just because he wants to do the Joker. How does that even match what's going on in Batwoman? It doesn't. Because Batwoman has nothing to do with anything else that has to do with the Batman books right now. There's nothing that links it to the Batman books. There's no mention of what's happening in the other books. There's no mention of what happened in Gotham City. Nothing. Batwing. What does Batwing have to do with Gotham City? Nothing. But what did we see back in May when Court of Owls crossed over with Batwing? What did we see with that? We saw this weird, out-of-place issue where it had to do with Court of Owls, but it didn't make any sense of why it needed to happen. It's the same thing with when we had the All-Star Western. I insisted that we reviewed All-Star Western, and then we got a whole two, three pages of, like, one talent popping up in the old Gotham City. It's just, what is the necessity for that if that's all you're going to do? I mean, to me, it just seems like you either go all out, like some of these titles are doing where it is an entire story about the Joker, or you just stay out of it, which is what they decided to do with Batwing this time around. But, like, to me, I think the problem with this crossover is that Scott Snyder says, here's my idea. I'll work with you so that you guys can write your own issues based around my idea. But the thing is, that's not how crossovers used to work. If we look at the crossovers that happened in the 90s, it was basically one person dictating what should happen, and then that person, the, the other writers just write what should be happening in the other books. Yeah, they would have meetings over it. And I'm not saying like what they do now is bad, but it just it doesn't come across as cohesive as it could have. Like You read No Man's Land, there's... God knows how many writers writing one trade of No Man's Land. And it's a story that flows almost perfectly together. And the other thing that's different between the crossovers then and the crossovers now is that they insist that you don't have to get all of the issues to know the entire story nowadays. Mm. Because they don't want you to feel as if you need to spend $100 to read the entire story. Which, you know what? That's fine. You don't need to. But the problem is that it doesn't feel as a giant cohesive story. They try to do these things where they say, oh, well, this happened before here, or read this to find out what happens here, or here's the timeline of this. But the problem is that's basically saying, if you want to know what happened, read the other book, without telling you, here's part one, here's part two, here's part three. And I find it annoying, because I don't really want to read half of an issue of Suicide Squad and then find out that I need to go read Batman number 14 and come back and then read the end of Suicide Squad, because that's what happened in between. That's stupid to me. And that's not cohesive. I want this stuff to be more cohesive. All right, so Batman and Robin number 15, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. I I thought this issue was well done. I don't Mm -hmm. like where the the direction where it's going, but I'm going to give credit credit to you. I'm going to give it three out of five batterings. When first reading this, I really liked it. Don, as he so often does, has managed to put doubts in my mind. (laughs) So from a... From a four, I'll give it three and a half because I still I really like the art no matter what happens in the book. 
I really enjoyed it, and it it certainly gave me nightmares just with all of the slugs and then the sluggy Batman coming up. So it was very nightmarish and macabre, but I think it really fit with what was going on, and I definitely agree with Joe, which I allowed to go before me this time. But I give this four out of five batterings. All right, so Batman Robin number 15 gets a total of three and a half out of five Batarangs. Let's move into our next issue, Detective Comics number 15. Let me just say, people, I thought that this was the best book in the batch, so just think about that. Detective Comics number 15, The Dirt Nap. Writer John Lehman, art Jason Fabok, colorist Jeremy Cox. We open with three thugs patting down the dirt on a newly covered grave with an alive poison ivy at the bottom asking for Batman, Clayface, anybody? Flashback to Las Vegas. One month earlier, where Ivy and Clayface are getting hitched, then a series of robberies dotted over the country committed by the two newlyweds present day. Clayface is pounding against Batman, demanding to know where Ivy is, as Batman tries to convince him that he is merely a puppet being controlled by Ivy. Batman doesn't really understand how Ivy was able to implant her toxic suggestion if Clayface has no skin. The fight continues, and Batman quickly realizes that he is not equipped to fight him at this time, so he leaps onto the Batplane, taking a little souvenir flower with him. At the Iceberg Casino, some character I don't really recognize, he's kind of chubby and has a pointed nose, is speaking to Ogilvy about the burial of Ivy, checking that it was indeed airtight. Ogilvy says that she has at most a half hour and comments on the nervousness of his boss, because he's certainly is sweating bullets, as we see Joker standing in the shadows behind him. Penguin comments that he just came back to the lounge to take care of a couple things, but he must be going. And Ogilvy is going to be in charge while he is away and to take care of his operation. His operation? At Wayne Manor, Bruce is examining the flower that he took, reflecting on Ivy's recent history with the birds and making a decision. He goes to the Shandy Pharmaceutical Processing Plant, around which Clayface is, and below which the police are. Batman calls Gordon and tells him to pull his men back as he appears in a suit sure to be a hit action figure. For real? He, <laughs> he declares that he will tell Clayface where his wife is, but the truth will hurt and burn all the way to the root as he sprays him with herbicide with some defoliant and napalm mixed in to achieve the strongest, fastest effect. A cocktail created by Batman and played by Tom Cruise in Cocktail. Was it called Cocktail? Anyways. Let's pretend it is. <laughs> that movie where he was a barista. Batman then explains how Ivy was able to make Clayface open to her suggestion. After the falling out of the birds, Ivy knew she needed someone tough and obedient, so she broke Clayface out of Arkham. As the suggestion of Ivy wears off, Clayface sees the truth, and Batman remarks that he beat Clayface in a different way. His heart. <laughs> Clayface goes into the sewer, and Batman lets him go, as he has other priorities, Gotham, safety, and the Joker. Elsewhere, Ogilvy digs up Ivy and he explains that due to her ability over plants, she was able to photosynthesize the CO2, uh, carbon dioxide, back into oxygen, thus preventing her from suffocating. He lets her know that Penguin wanted her dead, but he sees her value as an ally. Penguin has been taken to Arkham Asylum by Joker, that he doesn't expect him to return, and if he does, there won't be much left of his empire because Ogilvy is now Emperor Penguin. Next, the Emperor strikes. 
in the backup, Love in Bloom, which stars Clayface. This was also written by John Wayman. The art was by Andy Clark and the colors by Blonde. Clayface sits in the Gotham sewers holding a piece of paper saying, My dearest Basil, in the past we see Carlo in Arkham Asylum. He's getting weekly letters from Ivy with photos and flowers. And on one panel, which I think was almost... It was just so great in its in, in its simplicity. Uh, we see Clayface becoming more and more plant-like as the time goes on until Ivy actually comes to get him. In the present, Basil crushes the paper, probably out of, you know, broken heart and, and her feelings, gets out of the sewer and goes to a motel outside Gotham where Ivy meets him, explains that the plant didn't work out, but they are leaving. Clayface says, says no, which confuses Ivy because, well, he should be under her control. And then he says that his name isn't Basil or Sweetie, it's Clayface. Yeah, good times. Let's see. So first, uh, I I love this issue. I just thought it was great. I don't know how to explain why I thought it was great. I I think that we've not really seen Clayface in this manner. And it it was a different way to defeat him, to use his heart. And just how Ivy was able to plant her toxic suggestion over him. I think that for once the backup really did the main issue justice in going back and it it really supplemented the material. And I think it's an interesting twist that that Penguin is gone from the Iceberg Lounge and we don't really know what's going to happen to him. And then we've got this new guy that, I mean, talk about insubordination sort of popping up and then deciding he's going to take in charge. So on that point, what do you think Joker has planned for Penguin and will he make it out alive? And I was sort of thinking as I was thinking about these questions, I thought about Dark Victory and how Two-Face, if you remember when he was in the sewers, he sort of gathered all of the, the villains together. And do you think Joker's plan could be similar? We've only sort of seen him gather Penguin right now, but do you think he could also maybe get some other people that have been out and about in the New 52? So what does Joker have planned? And do you think it could be similar to how Two-Face was playing the part in Dark Victory? Hope he kills Penguin. But, uh... I thought it was kind of already established that was Joker's plan. I mean, we'll get to him again in Batman number 15. And then even in number 13, he sort of recruits Harley Quinn in that issue to do his bidding. And then that's since kind of been expanded upon a bit in Suicide Squad. Well, I think the biggest question here is why was this issue, why did it have the Death of the Family uh, banner on it? Because of the one page with the Joker standing in the corner? (laughs) And them saying that Oblivion needed to take over Penguin's operation because Penguin had some work to go do for the Joker. That's the big question because, honestly, this had nothing to do with Death of the Family other than that one little mention. But I'm pretty sure that was probably more of an editorial thing. But related to the Joker's plan, I think the the problem is that this issue doesn't really delve into what the Joker's plan is at all. The only way we know about the Joker's plan is based off of two things. The interviews that Scott Snyder has done about how he's going to recruit the other villains to do something. He's never really said what. And then the backup that was in Batman number 14 with Joker coming to Penguin and saying, listen, I'm taking out all these mob bosses. I want you to unite everybody together and prepare for war. And other than that, we don't know anything. We just know that now he's, for some reason, popped up in Penguin's office. And, and like, the problem is when you compare this to the backup that happened in Batman number 14, it's kind of off pace because I don't think that it's very likely that after Penguin talks to the Joker, 
Joker is going to allow Penguin to go back to his office to settle his affairs with his lieutenant and then say, okay, we're going to go now. Like, that's the only part that's kind of off, is basically if Joker says Penguin has to do something, Penguin's going to go do it and make a cell phone call to Oblivion and tell him and not just appear back in his office all nervous with Joker sitting in the corner. It's almost as if Joker has led him back after meeting him at the church and said, okay, I'm going to stand here, you settle your affairs, and then we're going to go. Like, that just... But that's not, that's nobody's fault except for the fact that it just, they're trying to make it cohesive without it actually being. I think what's happening with the Joker is that he's, I don't know if this directly will answer your question about Two-Face and Dark Victory and how this relates to this, but I think the biggest and in some cases the most memorable Batman stories involve multiple villains. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily multiple allies or multiple members of the Bat family, but multiple villains. Think of just the last 15 to 20 years. No Man's Land. Tons of villains. And all the villains have these like specific parts that they play in the story. Hush. Dark Victory. Nightfall. We can go back to even Battle for the Cow with all the villains that were involved in that. These stories have lots and lots of villains. Batman R.I.P., even it wasn't, even though it wasn't the main villains that we know, it was a ton of villains from the past that have, that popped back up. So, I mean, like, if you, it just seems like the recipe for success for a memorable Batman story over the long haul is to have as many villains as possible and to have the majority of those villains be memorable, well-known villains. And that's just seems what is happening with him recruiting Harley Quinn. That's a given because that, that's just, Joker, Harley Quinn, that makes sense. Him recruiting Penguin, okay, we'll bring it into the fold, and then as we'll see in Batman number 15, he brings the Riddler, who we haven't even seen in the new 52, into the mix too. And we still have multiple months before we reach the conclusion of the storyline. So, I mean, like, the thing is, that's what it seems as if it's happening. We're, we're making a giant Batman story, and the best way to do that is by having all these villains. Okay. My next is about Emperor Penguin. With Emperor Penguin now in charge, does this seem like it's the end for Cobblepot? And I sort of started thinking, oh my gosh, is this why he was popping up everywhere? And then all of a sudden, like, he's going to be gone. We'll have this new guy. So is this the end for Cobblepot? And what do you think we can expect from Ogilvy's reign? Because it wasn't really positive, like, I'm going to take control. He said, you know, when Penguin comes back, he's not going to have much of an empire left. I think it's interesting because Ogilvy is still kind of a new character who's not appeared too much. So if Oswald were to die or be shoved out and Ogilvy would take over his operations, I think that would be very interesting and very refreshing. Not just because I want to see the penguin go as fast as possible, but I think that he's really only been like, what, two or three issues? So I think that would be a very, that, that would actually increase his effectiveness as a potential bad villain. So I, I thought that was a great twist at the end. I, and I think, what do I predict? I'm not sure. I think that Ogilvy will either be found out and taken care of soon, or this will be a, a stretch out to be a long game, which could be interesting to watch. I think Ogilvy is a character that we're not really thinking about what he actually is. We have to look at some very small little minute details that have happened in the last couple of issues. Okay, so Penguin wants Ivy dead. Ogilvy somehow keeps Poison Ivy alive. He states that it's because he wants allies, but then we see in the backup she is free and she's no, she's not like with Ogilvy anymore. She goes back to Clayface to continue doing whatever she was doing. We saw the last issue, Ogilvy had the chance to kill Batman, but clearly states it's not your time and walks away and leaves him just 
laying there and just decides not right. to kill him, even though he had the perfect opportunity mm-hmm. to kill him. So could Ogilvy actually be a character that will find, and, and then we, well, well then I, I take that back. Then we go back one more issue and we see that Ogilvy made that statement to that guy who he was working with, who made the point of, you know, he cracked in the safe because he made all these, you know, very specific details. And Ogilvy says, you know, if you're too smart, you get on Batman's radar. And I think Ogilvy is going to be either a character that is not necessarily a bad person and is going to turn into somebody who's like trying to like just eliminate Cobblepot from the equation. And I'm kind of looking at the statement that he made about, well, his empire won't be here when he comes back. And I'm looking at that as maybe he's going to dismantle the empire that Cobblepot has built and maybe that's his intent and not necessarily just to take it over. Because I don't see, because he is such a newer character, I don't see him having the potential to really take on Cobblepot head-on and be able to survive it. Even if he is ridiculously smart and things like that, I think ultimately there's a lot more people who are going to side with Cobblepot over this newer character who who doesn't know anything. So yeah, he might have Poison Ivy on his side, but really, ultimately, who's he really going to have siding with him at this point besides Poison Ivy if he has to go up against Cobblepot? So I really think this is going to be something where, you know, maybe it'll be revealed that Cobblepot did something horrible to his family and he really just wants to rid the world of Cobblepot because Cobblepot just keeps getting off and never gets arrested because he, you know, weasels his way out of everything. And I think that's what's going to happen. So he's going to take on the role of Emperor Penguin because look at the name, Emperor Penguin. He's the ruler of the Penguin. So maybe that's what we're actually going to see. Yeah, so far I'm really liking Ogilvy as a character. I'm Like I've said before, I hope we see more of him throughout and it seems like we're definitely going to. I hope he's not just going to be killed off. As for the Penguin, I'm not sure. I mean, if that's been the plan all along that from the beginning he's you know the reason we've been seeing the penguin so much is to make it more effective that he's killed off i know that characters are supposed to die at the end of this arc but i would be surprised if it was the penguin and if it is i mean he's he'll probably be brought back in the future because as camp as he can be he's still like an iconic vision (laughs) i mean similar to the riddler like He's recognisable no matter how little he appears in the comics just because he's so hard to write. So I can't see them getting rid of the Penguin, but this is definitely opening up to potentially a really interesting story. I mean, some of the things that Dustin was just hinting at what might be, I'm really excited for that storyline. So I hope it's going to be something similar to that. Yeah, I think it would really throw people for a loop if they got rid of Penguin. I think that would be pretty interesting especially with everything i mean we start off the new 52 with pain and prejudice and then he's just been popping up everywhere and so i wonder you know if we're not going to get rid of him if after the riddler line is there going to be some sort of the riddler storyline is there going to be some sort of penguin story that's going to come forth because i feel like there has to be some reason and that he's been so important in the dc new but i i did want to comment on something that dustin said about correct me if i'm wrong but you said you felt like Ivy turned Ogilvy down because she went to the hotel room instead of, is that? No, no, I, I just felt as if, like, Ogilvy states, listen, you clearly survived because you knew how to change the carbon dioxide that you were breathing out into oxygen by using photosynthesis. And he says, but that would have never been possible if you didn't have plants in there oh. with you, making it very clear that he made it so that she would gotcha. survive in that box. And then... 
my thing was like she's not working for him after mm-hmm. that because she goes back to the hotel and meets up with Clayface to go continue her crime spree that she's attempting to do or whatever she's trying to do. So the thing is like if she's not working for Ogilvy, it's just basically he's made an ally by not killing her, which is the same thing he inintentionally did by not killing Batman in the last issue. Well, I wondered if if Ivy went back to the motel to get Clayface and basically say that, hey, we've got a new gig now. Yeah. That could also be possible. I, I am I'm wondering if we're going to see any sort of wrap up with that particular part of the storyline with Ivy and Clayface, because I feel like that is really what made the issue as good as it did. I just thought it was just very different. I feel like we haven't seen Clayface in this manner and then just seeing Penguin being taken away and then we've got this guy that decides to usurp the the throne basically. I just the latest Batman toy. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you think that was comical though when he wept down? I'm like, oh, this could be one of those toys that they come out with. But I I thought this was the best issue of the batch. The other thing I wanted to touch on was that, you know, in the the backup, when Ivy says, come on, we've got to go, it's almost as if she's, now, of course, this is me reaching again to achieve my ultimate goal of knowing the story before it happens. But the fact that Ogilvy lets her go, and the whole reason why Penguin was so dead set on stopping Poison Ivy was because she was destroying stuff that was his, I wonder if Ogilvy actually let her go because he assumes that she's going to continue destroying the stuff that Penguin wants, which ultimately means that Ogilvy wants Penguin's empire to be broken. I don't know. Again, I'm reaching, that's what I do. As for what you were saying, Dustin, about why has this got a death in the family cover, I, I think you're probably right. I mean, we've already got Batman where Joker's facing off against him. We can't have it happening in more than one issue without it turning into how it used to be with a, an actual crossover and you know multi-title storyline so it, I, I think that was definitely more for increased sales and stuff but I was reading the comments on DC solicitations for the issue and a lot of people were was frustrated that the Joker wasn't actually in it they, they were actually saying that they actually liked the issue quite a lot so I think it's definitely helped boost the interest in John Lehman because I think a lot of people might have dropped off with Tony Daniel behind the the writing desk, so hopefully this will pick up some sales for the comic. Yeah, I agree. Alright, so Detective Comics number 15, I'm going to give a total of four out of five veterans. This was my favorite comic of the bunch, too, man, because it was a break from all this needless grime. Strong four out of five veterans. Keep it up. Yeah, I agree. Four out of five veterans. 4.5 out of five veterans for me. Alright, Detective Comics number 15 gets a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move into our last issue. Batman number 15, written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Pulo. The issue starts off where we last left off in Batman, where Joker is with Batman on the bridge. Batman is tied up. Joker is explaining that he knows exactly what everything is, and police show up, and Harvey Bullock is leading them, and Joker reveals that just as the police are about to receive their orders from Bullock about whether or not to take out the Joker. Joker uses his two-way radio to radio to his henchmen to light them up. And they shoot some (laughs) rocket launchers, or grenade launchers, whatever you like to call them, off at the police cars, which causes everyone to mayhem. Batman lunges at Joker, and the bridge gets hit with one of these rockets, 
And after Joker states, now that's what I call a Batman lunges at him from the flames and punches him in the face. And Batman picks him up and holds him by his throat and says, tell me where Alfred Pennyworth is. Then Batman realizes that he has some toxin in his system that he got by hitting Joker in the face with his glove, which happened to be burnt and presumably missing a piece, which caused the contact from the Joker's face to Batman's hand. As Batman starts to fade out, he is told by the Joker that he's being used for a celebration that will happen later on. Batman gets kicked into the water and then wakes up to someone saying, Bruce, Bruce. He wakes up and the entire Bat family, including Tim, Barbara, Dick, Damien, and Jason are all there. And they are explained to him that the Joker has been caught and that everything is okay. And as they say that, Bruce asks, where's Alfred? Alfred walks in the room and is, in fact, has his face cut off. <laughs> and it is revealed that it's actually the Joker underneath the face of Alfred. And he takes an axe out and swings it at Bruce, to which Bruce wakes up in the Batcave, surrounded by the exact same people, except for the Alfred. And they all state that they need to talk to Batman, and they want to know what the Joker's talking about. They want to know if the Joker actually knows all of their identities. After Batman explains numerous times that there's no way that he knows, it's just what Joker does, he's messing with us. Tim says, well, how do you explain this? And they show some footage of Alfred being attacked by the Joker. Batman explains that the only reason he went after Alfred was because of Bruce Wayne's connection to Batman Incorporated. And Joker needed someone to help with the celebration, and of course, Alfred would be anybody's first choice for that. As they continue to uh, talk, they specifically start stating other things, such as the fact that he went after Barbara's mother, and he says it's not that he went after your mother, but he went after Commissioner Gordon's ex-wife. Then he talks about a calling card. Tim brings up a calling card that Joker mentioned in the last issue, to which Bruce says um, it was a long time ago. And after they all press him to tell him, it was one of the first times he ever battled with the Joker. Joker had a blimp that was flying above the reservoir, and he was using the blimp to gas the city. Batman hit Joker, and Joker fell into the, the reservoir, and Batman used the bat boat to pull the blimp into the water before anybody became infected. He uh, then drove the bat boat back to the bat cave through a number of caverns, went upstairs, and in the morning he came up, and sitting in the water near the Batboat was a Joker card. This is, in fact, the same Joker card that he has the giant version of hanging from the Batcave, and he says that he made a replica of the one that he found in the water. This leads everyone to believe that the Joker was in the cave and, in fact, knows that Batman is, in fact, Bruce Wayne. After Bruce explains it's not possible, there's no way that Joker got into the Batcave, they continue to press him on how he would know. After he names off a number of different ways of how he would know whether or not the Joker came in, he basically makes it very clear that it was not very possible for this to have happened. Batman then states that he has a lead to follow and dismisses them and says, you all need to stop talking about this. As he takes off, he follows a lead where he found out the Joker used a prepaid cell phone, a burn phone, to contact his men who fired off the rocket launchers. And he approaches one of the men and finds out that one of the men is actually working at Arkham Asylum as a guard. His name is Dylan McDyer. 
He's worked at Arkham Asylum for nine years, and he explains that the Joker has basically set something up inside of Arkham Asylum, and all of the uh, guards had to just play along with whatever the Joker said, or the Joker would attack their families. So for a very long period of time, Joker has been setting up shop inside of Arkham Asylum. Batman drives to Arkham Asylum and attempts to go in, and he walks up to the steps, and the issue ends with, but here's the kicker. Alright, so then the backup, written by Scott Snyder and James Tinian IV, art by Jacques. Red light, green light, starring the Joker and the Riddler. We have Arkham Asylum. In Arkham Asylum, the Riddler's talking about how he's doing a bunch of puzzles. One of the guards approaches the cell that the Riddler is in, and he's visually very upset as he is crying. The Riddler wants to know exactly what's going on, and he sees a number of the Arkham guards carrying a horse... They lose their grip and they drop the horse. The Joker pops around and says, this was supposed to be special. This horse is ruined now. And he shoots the horse and says, we have to go get a new one. They ask about the guard who's stuck underneath the horse. And he says, well, he's ruined too. And he shoots him too. After the Joker starts talking with the Riddler, the Joker explains, you're one of the smartest people. You're always thinking numerous steps ahead. How are you still in Arkham Asylum? You, of course, know a way. So why is it that you still want to be here? Riddler kind of dismisses it for a while. Joker prompts him by throwing a Joker ball full of toxic gas into Edward's cell and prompts him to basically say, listen, uh, I want to use you to help sharpen Batman's skills. You've always done a very good job at being the best weapon to sharpen Batman's mind, so I want to use you. As the uh, cell fills with gas, the light turns green. Riddler pops out, and Joker says, so how did you do it? And he says, well... There's 46 different ways out of the cell. There was only four that met the time requirement that you had, so I opted for method three, rewiring the door through the wall that I carved numerous weeks ago. As Joker states, this is going to be so great, he hands him a piece of paper with kind of his plan. It's on Jeremiah Arkham's doctoral diploma, and he opens it up, he looks at it, and says, I don't understand. I just don't understand. He says, don't worry, you're not supposed to understand. This is just for him and me. But trust me, you're going to want to come along for the ride. This is going to be something to remember. And that's the end of the backup. All right, so this was a pretty intense issue. There was a lot of dialogue. I tried to sum it up as much as I could without, obviously, reading every bit of dialogue that was there. But the first thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about the backup first. And the Riddler's portrayal, since this is the first of the Riddler's portrayal in the New 52, how you thought it was done, and based off of what we saw from this, how do you think a Riddler story from Scott Snyder in the future will actually work out? Well, I mean, if it's the first appearance of him in the 52, do you that, to kind of be pithy, do you think the new readers are going to know who he is? I thought it was fine. I didn't think there was anything different than, than what we have seen before. I don't think it needed to be different. It's different than the last time we saw him, because if you guys remember, the last time we saw him was during Tony Daniels' run, where he he looked completely different and was running around with his daughter, Enigma, whom we all loved. Not really. And I think the last time we saw him was, was it was implied that he went to kill his daughter. That bit sucked. But now this is a lot more back to basics. This is a lot more classic Edward Enigma. And I mean... For what we saw, I thought it was, I thought it was fine. It's, it's, I'm glad that they didn't change him so radically. And like, if they have changed him all, I've not noticed. It's my kind of change. I think the way he was portrayed in this was that he was extremely intelligent. He was a problem solver and he seemed almost bored by everything because he kind of, it's implied, I think, that he knows everything. He notices everything 
almost seemed on a Batman level. And I think that they're going to make Riddler even more of a challenge to Batman than he has been previously. He he doesn't seem as zany in here, whether it's going to be, I, I think, well, I mean, I think if I remember correctly, Joker says, you know, you've always managed to do it. And if it wasn't for your clues, you would have gotten away with it. You're far, you've tested him far more than anyone else. And you could have gotten away with it all of these times if you didn't have that urge to leave those clues behind. So I'm definitely excited for that. I want someone to do a, a good Riddler story because I really like the character, but he's obviously very difficult to, to write for. But I'm excited for it if this is any indication. I see what Joe is saying, definitely the cleverness and, and being bored, but nothing really shouted Riddler to me for some reason. Like, this could have been anyone to me. Like, some of the things he was saying almost reminded me of Julian Day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it really did remind me, just him, like, standing there and watching everything going on and commenting in sort of this, like, monotonous voice, like, oh, and bored. It, it just didn't feel like Riddler. So if this was the way to get everyone's attention, be like, yeah, Riddler's coming. He be coming soon, folks. It didn't really grab me like that. I think my feeling on this was, okay, the Riddler, over the last couple of years, we know that the Riddler was a character who they tried to, like, reform and he was a private detective for a while. He was actually working with the Gotham City Sirens for a little bit of time. He was obviously before that even working for GCPD. And then he decided to go back to being a bad guy when Tony Daniel decided to write him in Batman two years ago. But the big thing is, I think the whole basis of the character, him being extremely smart, him leaving riddles. You know, it's funny because last night I was watching an uh, episode of... Batman the Animated Series, and the Riddler was in the episode, and it was an episode, I can't remember the title of it, but the episode was, he gets out of jail and he's working for Wacko Toys. Riddler's Reform. And, yes, Riddler's Reform. And he's working for Wacko Toys, and he's trying to be a criminal, but still giving the appearance that he's gone straight. And the whole thing is, he's like leaving Batman these clues, trying to have him figure it out. And he's realizing that eventually, the the whole point of the episode is eventually he's going to realize, he realizes that Batman, he's either going to get caught or Batman's going to have to die. So he decides he's going to have to kill Batman. So he sets up this death trap and Batman ends up, of course, getting out of the death trap. And Riddler is completely stunned because there was no way out of the death trap and he cannot figure out how Batman outsmarted him. The whole basis of the Riddler is that he wants to be the smartest person and the only challenge he has is Batman. And that's why I think as he's sitting in Arkham Asylum, he comes across as he's bored. He has no real challenge while he's in Arkham Asylum. And that's it's part of the reason he's probably sitting there thinking. And that's one of the reasons I think the Joker's wondering, well, why haven't you broken out? You're, you're the smartest guy there is. You know, why haven't you broken out of here? Why do you want to be here? And that's never really addressed as far as why he does, he didn't tr- break out. But I think... Maybe he was just tired of, you know, running or he was trying to come up with a better plan or something like that. I don't know. I I, I think bringing the, the character back to he's smart and he finds Batman to be his true challenger as far as who's smarter. I think that's a good way of bringing it back. All right. So then the other thing I want to talk about is the calling card and the entire story. Well, the entire part of the main story where Batman is explaining to the Allies, this is how the Joker thinks, he's messing with us, he's making us believe that this is happening, that he knows who we are, but he really doesn't know who we are. The the thing I specifically want to talk about is 
There's a couple of points. Point one, do you think the Joker was actually in the Batcave? Point two, do you think it's out of line that all of the members of the Bat family are questioning Batman's judgment, even though they clearly Batman's been doing this for much longer and has dealt with the Joker many more times <laughs> than any of them, or possibly all of them combined have? And then the, my last point is, well, I'll leave my last point for a follow-up after everyone answers that. Those two points. Sounds like you've made up your mind as to what you think. <laughs> I think that, like, do I think that Joker was in the Batcave? I think if he's in, if he wasn't in the Batcave, then the whole scene was a waste of time. I think, honestly, I feel as though I'm on the side of Dick and Tim and Damien and Jason and Barbara that mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an important, if, if their identities are at all at risk, why wouldn't Bruce tell him? I know because Bruce says, you know, oh, it would be too emotional. And that's really kind of stupid of him, for him to do. He's denying them information which can help them be guarded against an oncoming enemy. And I think Bruce in here in this issue is overtly made to be missing the forest for the trees, so to speak. And that, like, he has, a, he has an answer for everything, but he's very, very rebuffing in how he answers these accusations and questions. If you notice, a lot of times he's kind of looking away or he's not actually looking people in the eye when he's, when he's addressing them. And I feel as though Snyder's intentionally writing him off to be, cause I don't, I don't think he's being thick. I think he's actually trying to divert questions on his judgment. So, cause I think the Joker's really freaking him out, which I think is alright. I wish it wouldn't make Batman look out to be such a putz because it really is kind of a thing where I think if Alfred was there, for instance, then he probably would tell them. But now that Alfred's, you know, kidnapped and Gordon's attacked, Batman, I think Batman's really kind of falling apart. And to illustrate this, he says, Oh, no, 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 no. He couldn't have come in the Batcave. No way, no way. Trust me, I'm the Batman. And everyone, like, like Dick's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so I think that these absolute, the, the Batman family is absolutely in the right in questioning him. And I don't know whether the Joker was in the cave or not, but I feel that if he was, and I think he might be, otherwise this whole thing was a waste, then it could be credence as to whether he knows their identities or not. I'm not really sure. I, I think I kind of fell more on the side of Batman because, you know, it's Batman. And, He's always right. So, Except when he's wrong. <laughs> I, I can understand the Bat family's reaction and, you know, questioning it. But, I mean, they'd obviously panic at just the idea of it. And I'd understand what they'd want to know. But I feel like Batman probably made the right decision. I mean, you can see from the reactions that they're having that they would panic and take it the wrong way. But, I mean, I don't know if he was in the Batcave. It was definitely made out to from Batman's perspective that he wasn't. So it would make sense that he wasn't, but you know, I don't know. It's, I'm getting a very strong Court of Owls vibe where Batman's like, oh no, they couldn't exist. This never happened. It's, it's not real. Then, oh wait, right. no, it all was. Okay. <laughs> For God's sake. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I, I'd say putts, like if that would be the way that I would describe, but just that entire scene, I just, I, I feel like I've never seen Batman in that manner, just denying what could plainly be in front of your face. And, saying that he knows how the Joker thinks when I feel like in the past, he normally says you don't know what the Joker is thinking or what he's planning on doing. Cause there's no, there's no reason to his madness. Like I feel like in the back of my mind, I'm sensing, I know of several storylines where he said this to like Dick or Tim or different people that have never gone up against the Joker and telling them you can't, you can't, know what's going to happen and so to go against all that and to basically know him inside and out it, it just feels very wrong and to have it, it was seriously like an intervention with like an entire family being gathered around batman as if batman had some sort of drug addiction and the entire family saying 
you do have a problem. You have a problem and saying, no, no, I don't have a problem. And it just seemed this entire issue, it was just depressing because normally Batman is one of the best <laughs> books. And I just thought, where did this come from? Very dialogue heavy. And for the most part, it just didn't really get us anywhere, but sort of bringing the character down a little bit. And I feel like I- I'm interested to see what the next issue is like. And I'm just wondering if we could have scrapped this entire issue and just sort of gone to the next one. But I do think that the Joker, I feel like he he may have been in there. I mean, you know, Batman has all of his gadgets and everything, but you can plan for the really expected. But I think Joker is the unexpected thing. And so he can do something that would so totally throw you off. But <sighs> I guess we'll see. You know what that reminded me of? I think Shiva says something in Death in the Family where it's like, it's a wise man who doesn't let his pride blind up from the truth. Because, like, you know, as otherwise Batman, you know, wouldn't be like, no, 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 we're cool. I got everything under control as opposed to considering the possible. And I think this is, I mean, I think it's intentionally written to be kind of obtuse in this issue. But uh, it is disconcerting to read. But see, that might be the biggest problem right there is the fact that this and Court of Owls was written from the perspective of Batman not preparing for something, which is the complete opposite of what we know for the character. And I didn't really think about that until you just brought up that quote from Shiva. And the reality is, regardless of whether or not Batman knows for a fact that Joker was never in the Batcave, he should have still had some sort of preparations for it. He should have somehow made some kind of contingency plan in case the Joker did get into the Batcave. And the fact that he didn't means he wasn't being prepared as much as he has been in almost every other situation. Or, for example, the Court of Owls just dismissing this legend that, you know, oh, this could never exist, and, and then it did end up existing, and then he was taken by surprise because he didn't prepare for something that was out there and that he wasn't aware of. It's just what's opening my eyes is that Scott Snyder is basically just showing us that Batman is very, very prideful, and he is convinced that he knows what is and what isn't true. And based off of that, that's what he decides he's going to make his preparations on. So because he believes that this is not possible, he's not preparing for something like this, which to him doesn't matter because it's him. But to the rest of the the members of the Bat family, it's a big thing because they all have families. They all have, you know, people that they care about for the most part, I should say. So, I mean, maybe that's reality. The one point that was made that I found kind of interesting was when Nightwing said Raya was taken out of prison. She doesn't have any ties to Nightwing. She has ties to Dick Grayson. How can you explain that? And honestly, that's not something you can't explain. The Commissioner Gordon, Barbara Gordon Sr., that can be explained. That makes sense. But the Raya thing, that doesn't make any sense with that. And I'm interested to see how that plays out in Nightwing. But my follow-up question is, Let's just hypothesize and say that the Joker didn't get into the Batcave. And maybe the reason why Batman is not looking at anybody in the eye and he's, you know, kind of dismissing, looking at and telling them exactly how he feels is maybe because he has a small amount of doubt because of that card. But the question is, how did that card get in the Batcave if the Joker didn't get in the Batcave? He explains that, well, maybe he attached to the Batboat using some sort of water-soluble glue I'm sorry that yeah. he comes across as completely unrealistic. Yeah, the Joker, he wouldn't come up with that. He's going to come up with water-soluble glue to attach it to the thing so that it doesn't show any signs of glue being attached. I mean, like, 
that's a big thing that I, I, I had to wonder, and that gave me a shadow of a doubt, even though I'm convinced that the Joker didn't get in there. It gave me a shadow of the doubt because I was thinking to myself, you're sitting there saying that the Joker is not smart enough to, and he's not strong enough to be able to get into the Batcave by holding on to the boat while it's going 50 miles an hour for five miles. You're saying that the Joker's not smart enough to do these other certain things but he's smart enough to put water-soluble glue onto a card, somehow attached to the bat boat, and it just happens to fall off and be floating in the in the bat cave. I mean, that's just like screaming. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> don't be, don't be dense. So thoughts on that, and that's my last thing. I you know have. what? I am welcome to the idea that Batman can't prepare for everything. I really am, because I, I mean, I like him being prepared. But I don't like him being like you know insane, crazy. Sherlock Holmes telepathy prepared, but I think that like, cause this, this story is kind of playing on his, Scott Snyder's run is playing on his preparation skills. From what Bruce explained, it actually doesn't make any sense if the Joker actually would, you know, hold on to the, to the bat boat and do it, which obviously means that the car was stuck on there another way. Perhaps the car was stuck on there during their fight on the blimp, which is a possibility that I'm surprised I didn't mention. But the, 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 the key of the, the issue here is Batman's willingness to be ignorant and thinking if the, the Joker knows our identity or not. And clearly he's being made out to be so. This is not like, you know, Scott Snyder is writing him wrong. It's just, you know, because the characters are calling him on it. And, you know, I don't know. Like, like I like Bruce. Because I like Scott Snyder's portrayal of Bruce Wayne. I don't like it when he's so emotionally immature, though. It, it's a fine line to cross because a lot of times he's written to be so one-dimensionally robotic that any show of emotion is actually very welcome, but to be kind of on the other side where all of his protégés who are in their early 20s or younger are saying, dude, this doesn't make sense. You know, everything you taught us doesn't add up to this. And he's like, you know, no, 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 it's cool. That is sort of like a little too much in that is he really going to not listen to what they say to that sort of degree? And I don't know. It, nah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm of two minds. I don't really like it, but I'm willing to see where it goes. I mean, I, th- I think it's... Kind of like Don was saying, the whole thing is it's been written to make us question just as much as the Bat family because Batman was so adamant that he couldn't get in. I mean, he's talking about the pressure sensors and the motion sensors in the cave. There's absolutely no way that anyone could have been in there and looking around and the fact that it was, you know, underwater so long, unless the Joker had like a rebreather type thing, there's no way he'd be able to hold on to the, the Bat boat for that long. So. I think it's all been written to make us wonder and, you know, wonder whether he knows their identities or not. I mean, in Batman and Robin, we skipped over the fact that he knows Damien is 10, but oh, he yeah. also says you, it's easy to see why you see Batman as a father so that it doesn't say explicitly, you know, that is your dad. If anything, it's, it makes it seem less like he knows because he's saying like a father rather than, you know, it's, it's easy to see why you follow your father. So there's, you know, it's all been written, I think, very cleverly <laughs> to make us like fight and discuss just as much as the Bat family. The other thing I have to say, though, is, you know, the, the problem is if the Joker didn't actually plant the card there and he wasn't actually there, the, the biggest question is how in the world the Joker know about the card to mention the card? Um, he's, he has special Joker powers. Joker these days has been written to be such a such an omnipotent bastard that it really is until the eleventh hour where they explain how he pulls off certain things. All right, so with that, that is Batman number fifteen. I'm going to give it three and a half out of five batarangs. I agree. This this is my least favorite Snyder issue of the run so far, 
And I'll say that was awful, but I, I wasn't feeling it when I get, got got uh, through the it. But it's still decent. Three and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, it was well written, but I would have liked to have seen more action. I did like the backup, though, but I'll also give this three and a half out of five batterings. And I'll go low, three out of five batterings. Get low, get low, get low. All right, so that's going to give Batman number 15 a total of three and a half out of five batterings. That is all of our books. Let's go over to John with Bat Books for Beginners. And welcome to another episode of Bat Books for Beginners. I'm once again your host, John, and this episode we are reviewing Gordon of Gotham. This was a four-issued miniseries that ran between June 1998 and September 1998. It was written by Dennis O'Neill, and it features art by Dick Gordino and Klaus Janssen. It reached 78, 96, 107, and 102 on the Comic Cron pre-sales charts. And it can be bought very, very cheaply on eBay for between 3 to £6 and dollars. However, it is very difficult to find on Amazon. So, is this going to be any good, or is this going to be something that you should really miss? Let's find out as we delve into Gordon of Gotham. Oh man. Lifestyle. Call an ambulance! Dad. Barbara? Uh. Uh. Oh my god, no! It opens with Gordon as a beat cop in Chicago, preventing a Sergeant Davidson beating up a hippie. He is telling the tale to Batman, who tells him to go on. Gordon continues, and we see him and Barbara argue. Jim storms out, and we cut to the police captain, talking to Davidson, asking if he's made the delivery. Whilst this is occurring, Gordon foils a robbery, getting shot in the process. This makes him a hero and means that the captain refuses to deal with him, despite Davidson's pleas, because Gordon has put him on report, saying that he should do it himself, which Davidson does, setting a trap for Jim. It nearly works, and Jim only just escapes with the help of a mysterious stranger. Davidson escapes, however, and with the captain plans on how to get Gordon and ruin his reputation. Whilst this happens, Gordon wakes and we learn that his rescuer is called Cockerman and he is a government agent sent to investigate something. Jim leaves and heads home. Whilst this is happening, the captain sets up Davidson as a hero and promotes him to detective. 
They use this to discredit Jim's story of being attacked by Davidson. They also have found Gordon's gun at the scene of the crime. Gordon is blamed for the murder that Davison was made a hero for dealing with. So he decides to go outside the law to prove his innocence. However, he's caught breaking and entering Davidson's apartment by the police. However, Gordon is rescued by Cochlin and Gordon then investigates the industrial district as that's where Davison has been seen. He investigates it and discovers that Davidson is helping to rig elections. So he goes and confronts Davidson over it, offering to cut him a deal. However, before it can be concluded, Davidson is shot and killed. It turns out that it's Cochlin who shot him. Cochlin and Jim talk and it transpires that he switched sides. But he's also sure that Jim won't stop him. And Jim doesn't. Gordon returns to the police station and is told to apply for a post that has come up in Gotham. We then move to modern Gotham and Jim tells Batman that Copeland is back in Gotham with Green, who rigged the election in Chicago. However, Batman says it's Jim's problem. He should deal with it to get peace. It transpires that Green's wife wants to divorce him, so she she has been persuaded to give a speech which will allow Cockland to assassinate her. So, and by doing so, Green would be saved the divorce and he would gain votes. However, Jim intercepts Cockland and beats him up. And the series ends with Jim talking about gaining redemption. There's nothing wise in what you do, Flash. Well, Jimbo, you don't take the taste. Makes us guys nervous. I'm no rad. In a town that's been, who's that a right to anyway? <laughs> I thought it was interesting to see why Jim came to Gotham. Um, it was a nice explanation, I thought, in a lot of ways. And it does fill in a bit of backstory for him. However, my problem with it is this story is incredibly, incredibly dull. Not really that much seems to happen. And I found myself getting bored quite quickly, wondering whether it was going to move along at any real pace. I didn't feel there was enough action in it. I didn't feel the storytelling was particularly compelling, in my opinion. It just chundled along, and I felt that really it could have probably been just two issues, and that would have worked just as well. I don't really see that this has created anything much more for Gordon, furthered his character, created any kind of depth at all. He just seems to have been exactly the same as he was when he came to Gotham. Even before all the events happen, we see him rescuing um, a hippie from being beaten up by a cop, and he says, oh, it's all my job, and I've got to do it that way. And that just sounds like a traditional Jim Gordon. It doesn't further his characters anyway. There is some really bizarre storylines. A lot of the characters come across as stereotypes when Jim's dealing with Barbara and they're trying to have a child, which links obviously into uh, 
Batman Year One, well, he says things like, oh, I'm supposed to be a man, and man creates families, and it just seemed really bizarre. All the characters that hate cops are over the top, ridiculous, and unnecessary. The massive stereotypes, or ridiculous caricatures. And all the people who love cops are portrayed as wonderful people. And it just seemed really, really ridiculous. And I didn't really understand it. That said, the art was very, very good. I thought it was nice to, and easy to follow. It looked very well drawn. It was detailed. Chicago felt quite dark and quite edgy, which was very nice. The action was easy to follow as well, especially at the end, which is about four or five pages of just nothing but action. It makes it very interesting. And I actually thought that was, oddly enough, the best bit of the final action scene. Uh, I thought that there was much more going on there. And I thought it was very, very well drawn and very, very well coloured. But apart from that, I just didn't really feel like this was a story we needed to hear. I can see why it's never been released as a trade paperback and why you can buy it cheaply. It's just not that interesting. I'm going to give it two out of five Batarangs. So that's my review of Gordon of Gotham. I don't think it's one to pick up. If you think differently, do leave a comment in the comment section under this podcast and let me know what you thought of the issue it would be great to have some feedback next episode we're reviewing nightwing huntress so you can try and pick up the book for next time so i've been john and i'm going to hand you back over now to dustin and the guys thanks very much for listening see you guys next time So that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are picking up the next set of books for the next episode. And also be sure to check out the Bat Books for Beginners feed on the website to catch up on all of the previous episodes of Bat Books for Beginners as well. With that, let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. We'll be covering Batwoman number 15, Catwoman number 15, Nightwing number 15, Batman the Dark Knight number 15, Batman Incorporated number 6, And we'll also be covering Red Hood and the Outlaws number 15 and Teen Titans number 15 as those both cross over into the death of the family, as well as Talon number (laughs) three. Which has nothing to do with the town. Yeah. All right. So lots of books for the next episode. We're going to be seeing Red Hood and the Outlaws and Teen Titans for the next couple of months as it deals directly to the death of the family, because I know Teen Titans is going to have remnants of death of the family with issue 17 and 18, we won't be covering those, but for 15 and 16 of both of those books, we will be covering those on the podcast. Batwoman, we may be uh, eliminating from our coverage just because it doesn't Aww. really tie in with everything. We will continue to cover Talon until at least issue 4, and then we will decide whether or not to continue that book. But for the most part, lots of books next episode. So real quick, I just want to go over a couple of quick things that we have planned for 2013 because... This is, in fact, the last comic cast of 2012. Obviously, the comic cast will continue on a twice a month basis, as it has been. 
But as far as some of the other things happening in the Batman Universe, be sure to check out the Batman Universe specials as the first episode of the OGN special, where we review Batman Earth 1, has posted, as well as the second episode of the OGN special, which has us reviewing Batman Noel. Those were both available on the website under the Batman Universe specials. Also be sure to check out the Batman Universe commentaries, as we have caught up with all of the animated movies, including Batman The Dark Knight Returns, and The Dark Knight Rises should be up by the end of January. We also have new episodes of Bat Books for Beginners, the Bat Fans podcast, and those have all been continuously being updated, as well as the Batman Universe podcast will be returning in January after a month hiatus. We'll also be having episodes of The Villain Wall returning in 2013 as well, as well as hopes to put in the new episodes of the Batman Universe interviews. So lots of things happening in 2013, so be sure to check out the website as well as new updates for the news coming very soon. So with that, that is everything for this episode. Be sure to check out the website and all of the other podcast feeds. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and updates and videos from the Batman Universe. And email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. Leave us reviews on iTunes and leave comments in the podcast episode post on the website. That's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This was Negative Nancy. This is Donovan. This is John. And remember, Bat fans out there, if you were like us wondering why people liked Batgirl, then you can hop over to Batgirl to Oracle and check out the two-part discussion that I have with an overwhelming amount. I mean, three pros basically on each of the discussions, and you really get a good sense of why they were enjoying the run. So I do suggest that. It was, it was very informative. And, of course, this is Stella. On the other hand, that podcast is now obsolete. Ah, so if you if you want to just ignore it, you can. This is why I hopped in front of you that one time. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Have a happy holiday. Fly on, Bats lovers. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Joke for us. For him is Jim Zub. Ah, oh, man. <laughs> Give it a shot. Zubkovich. Zubkovich. Okay, we'll just go with that. Or Zubkovic. Uh, go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, so here's the issue with this. Oh, no, no. I thought oh. I'm trying to figure out how Oh, no, no. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Zubkovic. Okay, we'll just say that. And taking over for him will be Zim. Uh, Zim. <laughs> <laughs> Invader. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what I thought oh, yes. when I said that. Um, we, we know that uh, Jim Zubkub... Oh, I'm never going to... This name is going to piss me off. <laughs> Zubby! I'm just going to say Zub, since for some reason that's what everybody's dubbing it as. Dog barking. Holly <laughs> passes out. At sub whistling. You're, hello? Really? Who is that? I know. I it's not me. I'm sorry. I was supposed to actually do that before. I, I apologize for not promoting that earlier.
I was in a rush because my son was coming down the stairs and I'm just waiting for him to open his mouth. And... <laughs> there we go. There we go. Boy! <laughs> a majority of the people who are on the Batman books to begin with were people who were newer to this, newer to the titles, except for Scott Snyder and Gail Simone. And Judd Winnick. Else, and Judd Winnick. And Tony Daniel. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That'll be edited out.